Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Hey, homeboy, gather around. Some serious stuff is going to go down. Call the Wrestle War Daddy, the kings of the ring. All come together and do the wild thing. Lex Luger, the stylist, date your boy thing. Yeah, they all be doing that. Yeah, they all be there with something to prove. Brimming with intentions to bust the move. It's pay-per-view excitement for T-H-E. For more information, call your cable company. What I'd like to have right now. Where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, your pop culture home. All right, and welcome to another Where the Big Boys Play. How are you doing, Charles? Chad? How are you doing, Chad? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you, Par? Um, well, <laughs> as you might Recovering. be able to tell, I'm a little worse for wear. I spent, um, I had uh, what you call a large weekend here. Um, I was on a stag do. What? What you Americans? Yeah. Now, what? What? So, is that a bachelor? You, you, you've mentioned that to me so, a couple of times, and a, I don't know what that means. A stag do is a bachelor party, I believe you call oh, okay. it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, yesterday I was drinking from 12 p.m. to 3 a.m. Nice. And uh, I ended the evening doing shots of 45% whiskey. Nice. And uh, I still think I've got it in my system. So, <laughs> if I'm on terrible form today, boys. Uh, that is the reason. So you may have to help me out here, uh, Chad, because I'm, uh, I'm, um, yeah, still recovering. Um, now, what type of whiskey is typically drunk in uh, where you live? Because I mean, down here it's all like Jack Daniels. Well, I'm a little bit of, uh, as with a lot of things, <laughs> um, I'm a little bit of a connoisseur, as it were. Uh, uh, good. I, I prefer the single malts. <laughs> Okay. Um, I'll t- I like a Talisker's, uh, but uh, we were in this like h- h- kind of meat market club called Infernos. <laughs> Any UK listeners, we were in Infernos uh, in uh, Clapham, which is like a real kind of. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't really go into it now, but there was a lot of um, you know eighteen-year-old women around and stuff, and I'm getting too old for this. Uh, but the only the only whiskey they had there was something called Marker's Mark. I've never heard of him. Yes, yes. I'll yes. Marker's Mark. Oh, it's pretty brutal, though. I mean, it was like drinking poison. <laughs> uh, I guess you get accustomed to it. <laughs> oh, it knocked my head off, though. Um, but like, it, my last memory was doing elbow drops on the on the guy who was going to be married last night. Like, I was just <laughs> dropping big elbows. I got him in a figure four or one point. You know? I was like... <laughs> Like I, I was trying to do the, um, the uh, you know, the Ted DiBiase uh, uh, fist drop. I was doing that quite a, quite a few times, so it was good fun. But then he did like he ended up sleeping in my bed, and I ended up sleeping in in a bed with like one of my friends. Uh, so not not not, not no hanky panky, just. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. So what are we here to talk about today? Wrestle War ninety, um, Chad. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, since May 2013, uh, when we last spoke to Charles, who's also on the line. How are you doing, Charles? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Um, uh, well, I sh- maybe I shouldn't have asked that. I think you <laughs> provided that answer. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm as good as can be expected, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, 
last time we spoke to you, Charles, it was Starkid89, okay? And since then, we've covered a grand total of one more show. So, Chad, what are we doing? I mean, <laughs> it's uh, it's now September, and we've we've only managed to do Clash 10. And but, it doesn't feel like we've uh, went that long. I guess the AWA show fiasco yeah. kind of hindered it. But, uh, but yeah, so, so not, we're not exactly on a good pace but here. But you also recap the 80s, which was two shows, right? Yeah, well, we, yeah. The, the 80s TV specials and the award show. So we, we've okay, essentially done shows. five, well, a bunch of specials. And we did the uh, the Crockett documentary, Chad. So Yeah, we've, we've done six shows since that time. So I'll give us a little pat on the back. That's still not great in four months or whatever. But <laughs> not um, quite as bad as it sounds. Okay, well, I thought at the start of the show, before we get into Wrestle War, given that we've had... Uh, Charles on the show before, and we've learned all about him. Um, that we could spend maybe ten minutes here, or five minutes, or however long, <laughs> shilling all of the other shows that we do. Okay, um, and we'll start with you, Charles, because you have uh, arguably one of the more exciting things happening in the wrestling podcasting world at the moment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your new show? Sure. So my friend Will and I just uh, started a show called Wrestling with the Past. Uh, Will is a poster at Pro Wrestling Only. He goes by Good Helmet. Um, he's he's fairly known within our little community. Uh, but he and I have wanted to start a podcast for a long time. Uh, I've probably talked to him in some form or another for close to 10 years now. And um, we... I've developed a rapport with each other, you know, over the years. And then we decided to just, I guess, let other people into our conversation. So we've done two shows so far. The first show was a year in review on 1990. And the second show was the history of the WCW television championship, or as Will called it, the world heavyweight television championship. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we hope that you, you know, you'll give those a listen and, um, let us know what you think. And we'll probably be doing a weekly show, uh, from here forward as much as we can. Great. And I loved how cryptic you were about Will there. A lot of people, yeah. may know him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and I mean, I've the first show was great on the 99 yearbook, and the, um, I've just started listening to the TV title one. And basically, Chad, I think it's fair to say, if you listen to this show, you will almost certainly love the show that those uh, Will and Charles do. Do you think that's yeah. fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I definitely feel the same way about where the big boys play. I made it a point to listen to um, the 80s shows while I was on vacation in the Dominican Republic. So, I mean, there are, you know, we're on a resort and there's all these beautiful things to do. And I, I spent my vacation with you. So be honored. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 and uh, believe me, it is, it is an honor. Um, so that was your show, Charles. Now, Chad, believe it or not, you have also got another show. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? So me and uh, Brad Woodling, who's the managing editor at a place to be nation.com, I started a uh, Brad and Chad show podcast. And it's more uh, with it, we're kind of taking, a, I would say, a less analytical tone from what you'd see at Where the Big Boys Play or uh, Wrestling with the Past. Kind of, uh, we sort of wanted to mirror it like a, a drive time morning show. And um, it's it's going to be kind of all-encompassing on all uh, facets of pop culture. I know our next show should be coming out 
in the next uh, day or so, and it has uh, some sports discussion and then a, a big Emmy television preview, actually, where uh, me and uh, Ben Morse, who's an editor at Marvel.com, go through all the uh, main Emmy categories and run that down. So uh, that's something we've started up to, and it's been a lot of fun. We've done uh, three episodes so far. Uh, One's been released. The next couple should be released uh, probably in the next week or so. Yeah, and that's the Brad and Chad show. And uh, you you do talk wrestling on there, though, Chad, right? And you had quite an interesting conversation on that first show. Yeah, the first show uh, was uh, about 45 minutes of wrestling discussion. The second show that, again, should be released the next couple days has maybe like 3% wrestling discussion. And then our uh, third show that we're going to be recording in the next few days, uh, we've already got some wrestling topics lined up. So when we do discuss wrestling, it will take, I guess, a more analytical tone, but uh, we kind of want to keep it in a more, I guess, jovial jovial nature. And, I mean, it would be remiss of me not to ask you, but how much of that is Prince Devitt talk? I mean... <laughs> Zero percent. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that you know when you don't have me um, oh, here, you might you might just be unleashed to talk about the devil. It's, it's gonna be. Uh, <laughs> I think it's gonna be my New Year's resolution in 2014 to shed the uh, Prince Devitt moniker. I never realized that like one uh, intoxicated statement in the middle of New York City on WrestleMania weekend would have so much legs, but uh, here we are months later and it's still rolling. For somebody I really don't like, that's what the most amazing thing is. I really don't think he's that good of a wrestler at all. From from here forward, if you need to talk about a prince, just talk about Prince Iakea. <laughs> we got Prince Nada. He's, he's not even like a top three prince, maybe, in wrestling. <laughs> okay, and uh, all right. And uh, what there was another show I was going to talk about. Oh, yeah. I've got another show as well. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the Titans of Wrestling, um, which is a show where we look at, uh, it, I mean, it's it's kind of similar to where the big boys play, but also different, Chad. I mean, you've listened to those shows. We, we uh, It's myself and uh, James, also known as Brick Hithouse. Uh, you may know, we've mentioned him on here, when he made the Gordon Soli comp for me. Uh, it's pr- probably the most we talked about him on this show. Um but uh, we look at WWF from 1979 to 1983, which is some pretty under, it's pretty slept on stuff. Um, but uh, we're also joined a lot by Johnny Sorrow, uh, Ricky Jackson, who's been on the show before, and uh, uh, a poster by the name of Shu, uh, who was on the AWA show. Uh, that was yeah. Pete, Pete, right? Um, right. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we we're going for it. It's more kind of a late night feel, I guess, like a late night kind of. Uh, it, you know, we we we're reviewing the shows just like we do on here, um, but because a lot of the wrestlers are lesser known guys, uh, we spend quite a lot of time going through their bios, and uh, I do actually try to do some proper research and things. So, you know, it uh, we hopefully it can be quite informative as well. Um, but going forward, uh, I know that Kelly has a number of kind of special shows planned where he looks at things like 70s Portland or uh, there's talk of maybe doing St. Louis. So that, that's a kind of show where we're really getting into some uh, obscure, you know, far off the beaten path. Um, so check that out if you're interested. 
Anything, any other uh, shilling to be done here, Chad? Place to be talk? I mean, <laughs> I, I should say that all of these shows are on Place to Be Nation, uh, right? Um, and you guys, Chad, do quite a good job of the, uh, what do you call it, the Daily Digest. So how can people kind of sign up to that Daily Digest to receive it? Um, you can like us on Facebook. If you're uh, on Facebook, we're at uh, Place to Be Nation. You can type that in, and we should be the site. And then uh, you'll get notifications on every article we uh, we post. You can follow us on Twitter at Place to Be Nation, and again, get all uh, notifications on every article. And then we do do a daily update uh, every evening, where we kind of do a rundown of all the all the uh, features, articles, podcasts, etc. that have hit the site on that day so right and i will say that if you're one of the listeners who mainly listen to this show through itunes we are having a couple of little behind the scenes changes uh that you probably haven't noticed um and uh basically the website that i host the content on uh through itunes could could be suspended and go down at any moment okay um, it's a kind of ongoing dispute between me and them. Uh, they think that we take up too much of the server space or, or whatever. Um, so uh, if suddenly that, um, you know, the shows may dry up. And if they, if they have, we probably haven't stopped. We're still going. So um, another way to kind of keep track of us is to join soundcloud.com. And uh, on there you'll find me as Jerry Von Kramer. If you type that in, you can follow the account. And all of these shows, that's Charles' show, the Brad and Chad show, and where the big boys play, is posted to that account. So you can kind of keep track of us on there. And it will let us know that you're listening, because uh, you'll come up as a follower. So that's uh, nice from our point of view. It's time for the Wrestling Observer Extra. Wrestling Observer Extra. With Dave Meltzer. There's only a couple of... Um, uh, wrestling observers to cover between Clash 10 and Wrestle War. It was only uh, about two weeks between the two shows. Um, but there's quite a lot of stuff. This is a very busy time behind the scenes uh, for NWA. Um, so I'm going to start with February the 19th. And I think there's quite a lot of interesting talking points uh, here for us to get into. So obviously, there's quite a lot of stuff about Sting's injury here. Um, and the situation with uh, the handling of this. Uh, and the booking that led to the situation where um, they were so dependent on Sting has actually put heat on Flair backstage. Um, and the office now want the belt off him. Um, so, well, I guess more on that uh, in a second. But the guy driving that backstage is Jim Hurd, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the contract of uh, Steve Williams, uh, who was scheduled to face Luger at WrestleWar, has expired, and he's gone back to Japan. Now, he's contracted to work tours for both New Japan and All Japan, making him the first foreigner to cross promotional boundaries. Now, what Melton means by that is that he'll be the first foreigner to work for both promotions at the same time. Now, did, did that happen? Like, you guys have seen the, the, the yearbook all the way through. Does Williams uh, wrestle for both promotions? He does, and so does Vader and Stan Hansen. All at the same time? Yes. Wow. So how did they allow that to happen? That's a bit uh, unusual. I think it was a brief agreement that they had. I'm not sure 
I'm, I'm not really sure of the details, but there was a brief agreement. It, it seemed it seemed to be more all Japan guys working New Japan than New Japan guys working all Japan. And I don't know if I could actually see Giant Baba having access to the New Japan foreigners and just choosing not to use them. Right. So. Um, so it may not have it, it may have been that he could have done it and he just chose not to, um, and I'm just speculating there. But um, but it it really I mean it was well I guess Vader well no I'm sorry I don't know why I mentioned Vader I'm sorry Vader didn't work all Japan during that time it was just Steve Williams and Stan Hansen, right and uh, one of the uh, things I wanted to mention here Steve Williams has left now the NWA. And on this show, as you know, I've been consistently down on Steve Williams, probably more than you, Chad. Do you yeah. think this is any great loss for the NWA here, losing Williams at this point? Um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, we talked about a little bit on the Clash 10 show, the kind of lack of depth in the upper uh, babyface side of things right now with Sting injured especially. Yeah. So, so I do think Williams was somebody that could... Uh, fill out that kind of upper mid card challenging for the u.s title that type role yeah did, what do you think uh charles you think they could have done with him no i i think i, I think he needed to go i i mean when they when crockett purchased the uwf in 1987 i think some people may have had in their minds that steve williams would be like a challenger to rick flair or someone who was portrayed on the um, as an equal to Ric Flair, and obviously that didn't happen. And um, I feel like that run was really disappointing for him. And plus, when he went to All Japan, uh, he really developed into a great worker within a few years. Um, and, and he might have already been there in some ways, but he really just you know upped the ante even more. So I think it was a good career move for him too. Right, and I, I, I'm kind. Of, I probably agree with that. That I, I think that he needed to go. I just think he'd done nothing and floundered uh, for NWA. And, yeah, he was taking up a spot on the roster, but I, I, I honestly don't know if he'd have been doing more than what like Tommy Rich is doing at this point, you know? Um, yeah. So, Tully Blanchard, uh, he was um, apparently in the dressing room at Clash 10 waiting to go on, but he had yet to officially sign the contract because it was being disputed. Um, TBS offered 156k a year for 300 dates, which is apparently the same deal that Arm was on. Um, Blanchard was re- reportedly asking for between 250 and 300k, which is what he was originally promised before he jumped to WWF. I, I can I can give some background on the story there. Yeah. When Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard were both going to be signed, they were going to be signed at a higher rate, and then. Jim Hurd's thought was um, that Arn Anderson was less valuable as a singles wrestler than he was in a tag team with Tully Blanchard, so he cut the deal oh, in right. half, and then he tried to bring in Tully for the same amount that Arn was now making. Um, so, so that's that's what happened there. Right. Well, at this point, the talks are ongoing, um, and there's talk that he might sign by the end of the week. More on this in a second. Um, but Tully didn't want to work 300 dates either. He only wanted to work 176 dates. Now, like, I'm not an expert on contract negotiations uh, here, but, um, like, is Tully really in position to play hardball here? I mean, he's just been, like, he failed the drug test, right? So, like, where's he going to go? If if um, if he doesn't get this deal, what's going to happen to him from his I, point of view? 
I think time proved you right on that one. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just talking with the hindsight, though. I mean, like, just take the deal, man. Would you agree, Chad? I mean... Well, her, her <laughs> babe from uh, UWF look really attractive. I can't even make an argument. I don't know. Yeah, I agree that he probably should have just uh, sucked it up and took the deal both uh, from his standpoint and from uh, ours as watching a product standpoint. So, well, I guess we can go through each of these guys. They could have done with Tully, right? He, he would have done a job on any roster. Um, yes. But here in 1990, he would have brought something to the table. Um, Great Muta quit the NWA, but they want him back. And there's talk of making a deal with uh, Rue Shoes. Familiar with those? Yeah. Shoes, yes, shoes for your feet and pockets for your stuff. <laughs> Apparently, if, uh, <laughs> if Muta had signed this deal, he would have been... He would have fronted the um, he would have fronted the Rue shoes deal. <laughs> there's some uh, great uh, commercials. Par, I don't know if you got to it on the ninety year book, but there's uh, some good stuff with uh, Rick Steiner shilling the Rue shoes. <laughs> so Mucha didn't sign, and they gave the spot to uh, Rick Steiner. <laughs> Sting, Sting has the little clip of it. Yeah, I'll uh, I look forward to watching that. Um, Plus, they're talking about making, um, like, if Muta did come back, they'd um, make it like a Muta comic book. Uh, I guess he had some sort of comic book deal back in Japan, right? He was, like, also a comic book character. Is that right? I have no idea on that. <laughs> I, I would assume, but who knows? Yeah, well, I mean, what other comics are there? The Ultimate Warrior famously had a wrestling comic book did you know that the von erics had a comic book that was only sold in israel i'm not sure why that was but they did <laughs> did, did uh, texas wrestling have a big following in israel they may have i'm not sure i know that um bix has scans so if you're interested in seeing them just reach out to him oh man wow <laughs> i wonder how they like did they draw you know obviously like, Kerry looked like he-man but the other Von Erics, like, did they draw them like skinny and weed? Like, they, they, they have great looks uh, for, for a comic book. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just I just googled this, and we got Saga of the Von Erich Warriors, and it's uh, Carrie and uh, Chris, and then or not Chris, but Kevin, and I'm not even sure at the front, and then a big claw in the background. Right. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> what, David didn't make it. <laughs> uh, it. Well, this this says yeah, it doesn't look like David. Well, it says it came out in 1989, so right. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, so after uh, David, I probably shouldn't laugh. Um, so this is there's a really interesting book in the, uh, part of this um, uh, particular newsletter now that we can uh, dig into if you want. Meltzer has an analysis of the current situation in the booking of 1990, which I know is uh, it, one of your favorite topics, Charles, right? <laughs> is, it's, uh, yeah, it definitely is. So I, I'll, why don't I take you through Meltzer's kind of critique and solutions here, and you can tell me what you think of his plan, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, and then maybe, like, we, we can talk about, we, we can either do it now or later, we can talk about what, what how you might have booked it, you know? Um, so... Meltzer's uh, big critique here is that he says there's too much looking and booking in the short term, but no long-term planning. He said the best example of this recently is the horseman face turn. 
Um, they needed to to have developed at least two more baby faces before turning Flair heel again. Um, he also says, and this is interesting in the light of your recent article, Chad. Um, he says there are too many people in tag teams at the moment, making the promotion overly dependent on Sting. What do you think about that criticism? So I guess his argument is saying, I don't know, I'll, I'll read that again. There's too many what, tag teams, he, so they're overly reliant on Sting. He's basically saying there are too many workers wrapped up in tag teams. And if you think about it, you've got like Butch Reed and Ron Simmons and both the Steiners. Right, and, right. So, so once Sting went down, there was nobody else to, I guess, take over the mantle. Right, because they're... Cause they're kind of seen as tag wrestlers. I yeah, guess, so. I, I think his point there is that Brian Pillman was being wasted in a tag team when he could have been a top baby face. Right, yeah, and uh, he, yeah. he's got more to say on Pillman in a second. Uh, okay, uh, Pil- Pillman's the one guy that I think you could state that'd be the case of, but with everybody else, uh, I mean, to me, it seems like they'd fit better in a tag, I mean, the Rock and Roll Express, I mean, I don't, I love Ricky Morton, but I don't think him as a <laughs> singles baby face star in 1990 is where you really want to go and right. how successful that would be i was so. thinking i he was probably talking about shane douglas that's it that's what he had in mind shane douglas is a uh, I, I hope not <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you know ecw fans will tell you that he's a good he was good right douglas at one point uh, that they, they would be wrong <laughs> um so he says that so he says another example for example is uh, Flair versus Lugo is the best solution to save Wrestle War as like a scramble to save the card, right? Um, and give the fans a good time on the night itself. But long term, he reckons it's the wrong answer because it leaves them with only one match to headline shows for the next three to six months until Sting comes back. Um, so this is Mel- Meltzer's kind of solution now. He says, basically, you need to build a super baby face, Okay. So you can either bring Steamboat back, or failing that, make one of Brian Pillman, Rick Steiner, or Scott Steiner into a super babyface, okay? Um, so I, I'll talk you through his plan, and then uh, you can tell me what you think. <laughs> he says, first of all, you've got to write off WrestleWar as being any sort of like, it's just going to have to be a car crash for one show, you know. It's not going to make the fans happy, but it's necessary to create this babyface, okay? He says... Make the main event um, or make a match where you say to Luger, you don't automatically get a title shot just because of the U.S. champion. You have to earn the number one contender spot in a match between you and either Pil- you know, uh, Pillman or one of the Steiners. In fact, I think Meltzer goes with Scott Steiner as the, as the potential person for this. Um, so Luger's still a heel. So you make Luger face this baby face. Then you give an upset victory over Luger to one of these guys, right? So to Scott Steiner, say. Um, then you can point out that Flair has never clean, uh, pinned Luger clean in the middle like this guy has. So then this guy, Scott Steiner, say, has got a shot against Flair. And then in the match, obviously show that Flair is the better, better wrestler and have Flair like dominate this guy. Um, but later on in the match... You know, Flair's been dominating and, you know, beating this guy to within an inch of his life. And um, the contender gets a kind of fluke-type victory, you know, with, where he's he's down and out, but he lands with his arm draped over Flair's chest and gets an upset victory over Flair. And all of a sudden, he reckons you've got, 
you, you'll have sent this guy over to the two main heels in the promotion, and you've made him world champ. So right out of the gate, you get a kind of super push. Um, what do you think of that plan? Charles, I'll ask you first. Um, I, I think it. I, I think there's a big difference between executing a plan like that with Scott Steiner and doing the same with Brian Pillman. Uh, Scott Steiner, to me, was not anywhere ready for a spot like that. I think at the time, Scott Steiner may have been a little bit overrated just because he had the Frankensteiner, mm-hmm. and he was seen as the star of the team for that reason. But I actually always thought Rick was the better worker and the better personality, and so I, I never got... I, I really think with Scott Steiner, if he didn't have the Frankensteiner, uh, then people would see Rick in that light uh, compared to him. So, I, and and then when you if you look at Rick Steiner, I just don't know that he has top babyface potential. Pillman, right. Pillman, I, I, I think it could have worked, but I'm not sure that it would have. It's just that it could have. I mean, I, I can see coming up with something like that and saying, hey, this is worth giving a shot. So maybe we should do it. It just feels like Brian Pillman is because he was an undersized baby face, which sounds crazy to say now because he's probably about the same size as most top guys, if not bigger than most of them in 2013. Yeah. But but I, I think he's someone who needed to be vulnerable pretty much all the time in order to be effective. And, um, he, and I don't know that a fluke win would be the way to go. I think if you're going to put him over, then just put him over. Um, and, and I think, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I see his point about Luger being a short term solution, especially because Luger was, a heel at this point and was a red hot heel. So I, I can get the resistance to turning him, but I also think that they, since the great Muto was gone and that would have been like a really good baby first face turn, actually, since they had blown off the Terry Funk feud and Terry Funk was now not even wrestling since steamboat was gone. There are a lot of short term solutions they could have gone with and they didn't really pursue any of those. Um, so I'm not sure what the answer was. I think maybe, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think what they did was right, but I'm not sure what the right thing would have been. I, I mean, they, they did book themselves into a, a terrible corner, uh, and I'm not really sure how they could have gotten out of it. Um, yeah. Do you, do you agree with the point that somebody needed that sort of push i mean maybe maybe not doing it quite the way that he uh, outlined but did did they need to create a face along these lines they so, did and i think with people that were in the company at the time brian pillman was the guy i don't know that he needed to beat rick flair though and i i actually think that might have backfired because the hardcore fans which is pretty much all that was watching wcw at that point in time were pretty loyal to flair uh and to a point where it hurt sting later in the year, which I know you'll probably talk about on future shows. So I won't get into that. But um, but I, I think actually Pillman probably would have gotten more out of pushing Flair to the limit and having like a classic match with him on a pay-per-view where he came just short of winning than he would have from actually winning the title. Yeah. I, did, I mean, to be fair to Meltzer, he does say um, that he doesn't think that Scott any of these guys are really ready for it um and he says that scott steiner blatantly like isn't ready for a push like this but his point is that these are the guys you've got so you've got to do it with one of them right 
Um, and yeah, looking at it, Pillman does seem like the one to go with. Chad, you got any thoughts? Um, I would agree that Pillman's probably your best choice just to see what you get. And I'd also agree that uh, I don't know about a fluke win for him. I think kind of making him as an underdog type character, but uh, giving him a definitive type victory would probably be the route I'd go with if you went that way. Do you think that hurts either Luger or Flair, that like, booking to put this guy over, you know, two upset wins? Um, I mean, I think you can do it effectively. I mean, not to get into current WWE, but, I mean, we saw John Cena put over Daniel Bryan, you know, effectively in that SummerSlam main event. And uh, I, don't, I don't think Cena looked weakened by that match at all. So Right, okay. But, that was as clean as you can get. But I guess my point is, like, is Lex Luger, a John, like, John Cena's had eight, you know, seven, eight years of being the man. Obviously, like, Flair is Flair, but do, do you think that Luger was kind of that, you know, a loss isn't going to hurt him at this point? Yeah, Luger's a tricky situation. I probably would have tried to uh, excavate Luger from the main event scene as much as possible since he was still the U.S. champion. Yeah. I'd have probably tried to keep him focused as kind of that semi-main event slot uh, and not have him necessarily like take losses i mean i don't think one clean loss to pillman would have been uh entirely like very detrimental to him overall but uh i don't think he needs to be lingering around and still constantly failing versus pillman either at this point yeah you know here here's another thought that i just had and this may not have worked i'm just throwing out an idea what if they put luger in the spot but never turned luger so they made Wrestle War heel versus heel. And you have Luger doing his heel thing and Flair doing his heel thing. And I actually think there could be some intrigue there because, um, I don't know, just to see kind of who the bigger asshole is. And I actually think that could have worked as a match with both of them trying to out-cheat each other. And I think there's some potential there. It's it's, it's it's heel versus heel is the most dangerous of all of the permutations to book, though, right? I mean, um, I guess if you could do it with anyone, it would be with Flair. But wouldn't the fans just cheer Flair anyway if that if that was if it was booked in that way, Charles? Don't you think that the fans would just cheer him? Um, I I think I would trust Flair as a worker to get the balance right. I, I think he could pull it off. My my thought, for, like the the way I'd go in booking this, uh without being too, is that I'd actually, rather than say, right, we need to create a super baby face and just do it in two matches, like in the way that uh, Meltzer's done, I just have Pillman versus Luger, US title feud extended. And if, if you think about the way guys are built, just give Pillman and Luger a big feud. And off the back of that feud, when, when Pillman eventually goes over Luger for the US title, you've made a star. So, so four or five months time you've got Pillman okay what do you do with the main event scene well I mean if you think about Flair is the star of this company okay if you think of what the way they did it in WWF it wasn't always Hogan versus a big name right sometimes it would be Hogan versus you know villain of the month as it were so couldn't you book Flair versus like weaker names just over you know over a few periods like 
you know, Flair versus Tommy Rich, Flair versus Eaton, say. I, I don't know. I mean, you can make... There are decent workers on the roster who could give you a good match. I mean, it might not be... And just build the card around, you know, Flair being Flair. Does it have to be... Do you have to have a super face in the match against you? Um, and then, eventually, Pillman versus Flair will be a big match. You know, once he once he's beaten Luger or whatever. Is it is that not? Can you see the logic I, in that? I can, and I think that's that's a, a perfectly good approach. I I think, and Chad might agree with me on this, having seen a lot of 1990. I think in a way they did do that in the sense that they developed two really strong baby faces, but then they really didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know how to push one without appearing to bury the other. Yeah. And so uh, that's the vibe that I got from 1990 myself. No, the, 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 the time when they did it really well is when Magnum was the U S champ and they had dusty in another feud and they did, they did that really well where, where you had two big baby faces who weren't hurting each other. I never got the impression that Dusty was hurting Magnum TA or that Magnum was hurting Dusty. Do you know what I mean? And it's, be, and it's yeah. because Magnum was so solidly in that US division, right? Which was, it's still a big deal. It's like, it's not, um, it's not a small deal to be the, in the US title picture. I, I actually think, I mean, you, you talked about the TV title recently, Charles. Do you think it's fair to say that the US title was kind of treated as a bigger deal than the Intercontinental Champion? I do, just because I think the U.S. champion was closer to, maybe not in 1990, you know, because Ultimate Warrior was challenging Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, but overall, the Intercontinental champion usually had their own programs in in the WWF, whereas the U.S. champion was challenging the world champion fairly often in WCW. Yeah, I mean, it's it's generally the case, like, the U.S. title, uh, the, the U.S. champion is the number one contender, usually. Um, in WCW, right? Or in NWA up until this point. Okay. Um, February the 26th, uh, newsletter. Um, a shorter one. So, yeah, if you had to give a rating for Meltzer's booking there, what, what would you go for? <laughs> think it was good? <laughs> uh, I mean, as far as using Scott Steiner, I don't think that would have worked. Now, obviously, we are able to kind of see in retrospect and once you see him in January 1991 with that little push they tried to do with him versus Flair, it, it becomes pretty obvious. But, uh, I mean, I'd probably like a B- minus if I had to give a grade, I guess. Charles? Yeah, a solid C+. Plus. <laughs> solid C+, plus, right. Um, yeah, I, I actually would go lower than that because I, I, don't, I don't think – I just think that's putting over the guy too weakly, like to have Flair – like – it's also just kind of obviously fanboy booking. When has Flair ever like really dumped? Like, I don't, I don't believe that guy who could beat Luger in an upset win then has Flair dominate him in the next match. It doesn't make sense to me. So, I, I probably go even less, like C minus or something. But, um, I mean, it, it, here's another issue: if they had all these tag teams, if that was the problem, then why not? have take the focus off the world title for a few months and do flair and arn against pullman and zinc and against the rock and roll express and the steiners and kind of make those the top feuds you know that's another option right i mean i mean that rock and roll match on tv was 
uh, very highly rated. So, I mean, that's possible that that could have, I don't think business would have tanked, really, if they'd have done that. I do. I mean, as we'll see going through the show, there are a lot of guys in that tag division. Do they need, like, Doom in there? I mean, they've got Midnight Express, Fabulous um, Freebirds, Rock and Roll Express, um, like, and the Dynamic Dude. So why not focus the tag division around those four teams? And then I did just... The, and then, like, kind of, I don't know, let the Row Warriors go. Sod them. Sod them. <laughs> or, or, like, do something else with the Row Warriors for a while. And, um, like, some of those bigger heavyweight guys can then become single stars. Like, Butch Reed can give you a good singles match against a Luger or someone, couldn't he? He could, but I think, and, and Chad will bet me up on this, you'll be glad that Doom was part of the tag team division when you finished 1990. Um, I understand feeling that way after watching Halloween Havoc 89 and Stark 89 and Clash 10, but it's like when the mask came off, they just became a great tag team. No, oh, right, no, I, I, I know that Doom are a great tag team, and I'm, I'm just saying that, like, looking at it from this moment right now, if I had that roster, I'd be tempted to make, like, because... You could make good feuds between Luger and those two guys working as faces, I guess. I don't know. Or making Luger the face and those two guys heels. You know, it doesn't... Like, I just think that you need... um, You need, need like, a Rick the Model Martel on the roster, you know? You need need somebody at that level to... And they don't have have a lot of them. Like, apart from Tommy Rich, who else have they got to, to kind of slot into a TV match at this point? I can't think of many. Yeah, I mean, but, that's a valid yeah. point. Buzz Sawyer. They've got Buzz oh. Sawyer. <laughs> um, so let's move on. February the 26th, Sting had major, major knee surgery, and he's expected to be out between six months uh, to a year. So a bit longer than Meltzer was expecting. Um, good news, though, is that WCW, World Championship Wrestling, became the first regular TBS show to hit 2 million viewers. That's not bad. How many people watch uh, Raw on the average week these days? Do you know? Any ideas? Uh, it's it's in the fours. About, about four, four million. About yeah. four million. So you know, two million viewers yeah. of that in that day and age with TBS. You know, that's not bad. It's not bad. At, like, it's uh, it could be a lot worse. How many viewers did TNA get? A million. Uh, yeah, T- <laughs> yeah, TNA gets right around a million. So. Right. So they're not they're not doing terribly. Um. Great Muta is definitely not coming back now. And uh, get this, everyone. Brace yourselves. <laughs> the Dragon Master also quit. Oh, man. <laughs> um, now, apparently, the Dragon Master had no bookings after the Clash anyway. Uh, and Meltzer thinks that he shouldn't have been brought in in the first place. <laughs> and uh, I think we all agree. Um, Meltzer thinks that Muta was never an effective heel because people never hated him. And he was too influenced by Gary Hart backstage. There are reports that his relationship with Hart hurt his attitude as well. Um, I know, I know uh, we've talked about that before. Um, Charles, I think you and I have talked about it on the message board. Uh, Muta could have been a face, I guess. I mean, I, I do share Gary Hart's concerns about, you know, would the fans cheer a Japanese guy? But I, I, I almost think that Muta wasn't a typical Japanese guy, that he was more like a, more like a comic book character or something. And, they cheered him anyway, right? So, yeah, had Muda been sticking around, I would have even said to turn him over Brian Pillman. Yeah, he could have. 
the one thing with Muta though is I don't know if he could be your top guy. I think he would be your number two face or number two heel. Do you agree with that? Or do you think he could be a top guy for WCW? I think for a short-term run, he could have been. And I actually kind of like the idea of the Steiners being unlikely friends of the Great Muda, so they could do promos together and stuff like that. I could actually see that working, especially Rick and Muda. I could see that being kind of funny, um, considering that Rick was kind of dumb at the time and like him trying to communicate with Muda and somehow <laughs> that working. I could actually see that being effective. That's not a bad, that's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> Um, no, good. Um, of course, uh, years later, the Steiners would get involved uh, in a few with the foreign fanatics. Do you remember that? So, be interesting to see them teaming up with the Japanese guy. Um, Dan Spivey has gone AWOL. Now, there's a suggestion that if Dan Spivey doesn't show for Wrestle War, the replacement will be Nitron. <laughs> Thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like likely they will switch to a Road Warriors versus Doom program now. Um, so no, nobody really knows where Dan Spivey's gone. You, you, you got any more info on that, Charles, Chad? I don't. I don't know where. Uh, well, Spivey was. When did he kind of show up in all Japan around that time? Uh, it wasn't too long after this, so that's probably what his issue was. I, I, I mean. Why, you just think he wanted to work Japan, so he left? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know, because he's back by, for Wrestle War 91, so that's kind of odd. But, uh, but it's, yeah. un- it's unusual. He, he's basically pulled a Dennis Condry here, disappear yeah. without telling anyone. Um, and now a bunch of contracts have to be terminated. So basically the NWA wants to scale down to 32, a lean roster of 32 wrestlers, okay? So they sent... Um, a bunch of termination notices to uh, a pile of workers. So um, the way this works is that all wrestlers' contracts automatically renew unless they get sent a 30-day advance warning. Um, so all of these wrestlers had an expiry date on their contracts on the 15th of May, um, apart from two, who I'll mention in a second. Um, so they were sent this notice because it gave the NWA a chance to renegotiate. That's a bit of a dodgy thing to put in a contract, isn't it? I mean, you'd have to be really on the ball to make sure people are getting those advance warnings or you're going to get people... uh, You're the accountant, Chad. Is that a good policy? Uh, Well, as you'll see with WCW, as we get later on, there (laughs) is uh, some oversights that are made where people are on contract for years. (laughs) <laughs> with uh, with nobody noticing. So, so I, I thought what we'll do here is you can say keep or throw, okay? Um, okay. It doesn't matter what actually happened. Uh, just tell me if you'd keep them or not. So the dynamic dudes. Uh, throw pretty easily. Charles? Throw. <laughs> All three Samoans. Uh, I'd say throw. Charles? Um, I'm, I would probably keep two of them. Which two? Any uh, any thought? Probably Samu and Fatu. Right. So, Samu and Savage was pretty rubbish at this point. I yeah, think. yeah. Uh, right. Now, Lord Littlebrook. <laughs> oh, that's a definite keep. <laughs> um, apparently, he wasn't under contract, so oh, he's that's... so he's gone anyway. They just told him he was fired. So there we are. Um, Royal Family. Now, who is that? Royal Family. That was uh, Jack Victory and Rip Morgan. 
Oh no! Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> definite throw there. Yes, throw. I would keep uh, Jack Victory for a mask no. for any time you need a mask man. That's a useful man to have on the <laughs> roster. Um, Midnight Express and Jim Cornette. Yeah, I think that's a definite keep. It's a definite keep at all costs. Yeah. Yeah, so what? there's a bit more of story on this. Uh, the, the SST, the dudes, and the MX are all on two grand a week deals, okay? Cornette, who was also a booker and a commentator, was on more, okay? Because he had the two... As a performer, he had that same 2K a week deal. But then he got paid, paid again for being a booker and a commentator. So Cornette was probably raking it in in 1990. Um, and uh, he, he kept all his receipts, right? You can... You can go and look at them at some, uh, in one of his books. I keep on meaning yeah. to get that. Um, but there's talk of splitting up Cornette from the Midnight Express at this point because they don't like the idea that they're tied together. And if you remember last time they had a problem, that was the problem last time. That, you know, it's either all three of us or none of us type thing. Um, so the talk is they want to keep Cornette and they probably want to keep Eaton too because he's a, he's a good hand, etc., um, but maybe Stan Lane will go. They need to get down to 32 wrestlers. I guess you'd all want to keep Stan Lane and keep the MX together, right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, to me, that's uh, and like Charles said, at all cost. I mean, for me, I'd keep. So. Yeah. But any 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 thoughts from your your end, uh, Charles? I mean, I honestly think that Eaton is of better value as a tag wrestler. But I guess we'll see in 91 if that's true or not. <laughs> he, he's definitely a better value as a tag wrestler. And I like him as a singles wrestler, but the Midnight Express was far more effective than any Bobby Eaton singles run. Um, you will see this Midnight Express story play out all year, by the way, right. the, the, in the Observers. Uh, well, I look forward to it. And uh, uh, news for listeners of the show, I have also managed to track down um, P, uh, the, the, the Torch, for 1990 um so i i may sprinkle in some details from the torch in these updates um although from what i've seen they they did it much it was, that wasn't a weekly publication it was uh bi-weekly was it or even yeah monthly? yeah yeah like, like every other week yeah yeah so they're they're a little i haven't included them this time uh, this time because they're a little bit off the pace and um there's some really big news around the corner so i thought i'd save it for that um, do you want to hear something crazy um, Wade Keller was only 18 years old in 1990. Are you serious? I'm serious. He started the torch when he was 15. Wow. So, so like uh, John Williams was working for a 15-year-old at that point? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you think uh, that it's a Hall of Fame time uh, at the moment? Do, do, do you think um, Wade Keller would be in with a shout of uh, getting into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? As a non-wrestler, <laughs> I mean, um, Gene Oakland's not in there, so the answer's no. But <laughs> um, what do you think? I mean, for me, if they did, uh, Meltzer's never really put somebody. Is, is after on the ballot? He is on the ballot now, right? Bill Aptor is on the ballot, yeah. Yeah, so now he's put in after on the ballot. So that's kind of the first, I guess, journalist type person. Uh, I mean, I, I'd I'd vote for Meltzer and Keller. I mean, as a non-wrestling figure, I think both of them with the evolution of what we do uh, as a small niche community on the Internet discussing wrestling, 
I think they were uh, sort of the forefathers, both of them. Uh, Charles, would you put them in? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, how do you think Keller compares to Meltzer? I mean, Meltzer's kind of like a one-man army machine, right? I mean, he's just a wonder for me. I think, yeah. he's, I think he's arguably one of the most important guys, like, period, for wrestling. It, the development of uh, wrestling fandom... If he, I mean, if he didn't have, if he hadn't, like, we talk about wrestling historians and things, if he hadn't have done what he'd done um, so consistently for all those years, it wouldn't, a lot of it wouldn't be possible, I don't think. You know, record keeping, all sorts of things. Um, but how does Keller compare to that? My well, Meltzer, you know, he started, he had a, a like a six-year jump on Keller. Um, and, and... Wade really set up the torch in the early years as kind of like, I mean, like you said, Meltzer was kind of a one-man show in a lot of ways with his newsletters. Uh, Keller always, even in those early torches, had a hodgepodge of columnists and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I I really like a lot of uh, Keller's kind of takes and opinions up until the, uh, I I guess I'd say the mid-2000s. I, I actually think Keller's reputation in the past couple years has been restored a good bit because uh, there was a point in time, I think, around the mid-2000s where it really seemed like he was kind of checking out. Uh, right. He was having these very elaborate, crazy theories. His website, the VIP content on his website was uh, pretty sporadic. I know he had some personal stuff going on that he's actually discussed publicly with his VIP members, but... Uh, but it was it was pretty sporadic where it'd be you know Thursday and you'd be getting his raw report and stuff like that. But uh, in the past couple of years, he has really amped it up. I think he he's done a daily audio update every day for the past three wow. years running. Uh, you know, fifteen to twenty minute hits. They I think the torch really in the past three years has kind of bounced back a good bit, and so that's helped him some. Wow, I mean. The, the- It'd be fair to say that if uh, if the observer is like the you know the number one or the or the original like the the torch is pretty safely in there as uh, you know the Pepsi to observers Coke right 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 yeah sure <laughs> um, all right uh, the only other thing to take away from this newsletter is that um, he gives Flair Pillman uh, four and a half stars and a match of the year so far. I thought you, you are probably two of the best uh, people in the world to ask about this. Flair Pillman, four and a half stars and uh, match of the year so far. <laughs> Charles? Um, I, I wouldn't go that high with it. I thought it was a really strong TV match, really hot crowd. Um, and Flair and Pillman had really good chemistry. It's always really fun to see them light each other up with chops. Uh, and they just they have a flow that works really well between them. But I, I don't think I would go three and, or excuse me, four and a half. I might go three and three quarters, which is still like a strong match. I, I, I would definitely recommend checking it out, but, um, did, but did I don't that, think it's at that level. Did that make the yearbook that, that match? It, it did. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you, Chad, where do you go on it? Uh, I actually have that. Let me see. I can pull up my rankings. I think I may have that in the. Uh, three and a half range i want to make sure yeah i actually do have that three and three quarters um yeah i mean i I think it was a very good match but uh just you know as a reference point 
I uh, going through the nine year book. That was my seventy first ranked match. That's insane. So I mean, I, I I definitely, and even at this point in time in the year, I don't know if Meltzer would have seen it yet. But you did have the Asano versus Liger match, which I think is clearly ahead of it fairly safely. Yeah. So I have seen that match, and I thought yeah. it was very good as well. Yeah. Although, although it made like. Well, we can talk about it later, but I think there's a match on this show that I, I probably prefer to him. Um, yeah, even even like, I mean, for me, I know you wasn't as crazy about this part, and when we do our 90s TV, we'll probably watch it, but I like the uh, Eaton versus uh, Flair main event match from January 7th better myself. I oh, do better, too. Better than the Flair Pillman? Uh, yeah. yeah I, I, was, I was a little bit disappointed by that, uh, by that match. Um, as well, as I said in the thread, but I guess we'll talk about it uh, when we get there, Chad. We'll, we'll do a big uh, end-of-year TV roundup, which should right. be fun. Right. He's wrestling's most respected journalist, and he's got all the wrestling news that's fit to print. It's time for the Wrestling News Network. Let's go to WNN and Gordon Soley. Gordon Soley update. Are you ready? The Gordon Soley update. <laughs> I don't know how much he's telling us at this point. <laughs> Um, all he does here in the on the 9th of February, he um, does a recap of Charles of Clash 10, uh, plus an update on the U.S. Tag Title Tournament. Uh, did you guys see any of that U.S. Tag Title Tournament on the on the yearbook? It didn't look very interesting to me. But um, we the we had the uh, Midnight Express Rock and Roll Express match from the semifinals. Right. I think there may have been a Midnight Express versus Pillman and Zinc match from the semifinals also, or from another round. I don't remember which round it was. And then um, we had the finish, just the finish of the finals, which was Pillman and Zinc against the Freebirds. Right. Okay. And anything, like, I guess the Midnight's, uh, the Midnight's Rock and Roll match would be the one to check out. <laughs> yeah, that was a good match. Um. He shills a wrestle war as well, as you can imagine. Now, on a personal note, he says, <laughs> Don Curtis, Gorgeous George, Lou Thayers, the Dusick Brothers, Dory Funk Sr., Dor- uh, Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr., Jack Briscoe, and Ric Flair. Just some of the great wrestlers of all time. Ric Flair was named Wrestler of the Decade by uh, PWI. Right. Um, however, <laughs> he... <laughs> He is now the master of deceit as well. Um, and his actions against Sting are reprehensible. He says that Ric Flair is driven by apprehension, fear, and greed. Meanwhile, Sting, Sting is driven by might is right. Uh, so I'm guessing that he didn't know about the injury at this point. <laughs> um, that doesn't sound very objective to me. I think that's some uh, yellow journalism, if, if I have to say so for myself. Um, now, th- the reason I, I, want, I read this out is because... Um, so Thez, Gorgeous George, um, the Funks, and Briscoe, I'd expect. Don Curtis, any, uh, I don't see him talked about in these, any, who is Don, who is Don Curtis? Any idea? I have no idea. Actually. I, uh, I don't know at all. At I mean, all. like, he could have picked like Don Leo Jonathan or, I don't know, I, I don't know who Don Curtis is. I, I just looked him up. Best known for his tag team with Mark Lewin in the 50s and 60s. So there you have it. That's the, the Buffalo Bomber is his oh, nickname. I wonder why Soli picked him out in his all-time list here. Yeah. Um, the, the other one is the, the, the Dusick Brothers. 
yeah, now I, I do know them a little bit, but uh, it does seem kind of strange to put them in. Essentially, he was naming like the Mount Rushmore of wrestling or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, so there, there we are. And I, I, like uh, a couple of people conspicuous by their absence as well. Like, doesn't mention Buddy Rogers, for example. Yeah. <laughs> seems, to, seems a little bit strange. Um, and then th- there's one more. <laughs> Uh, update from Soli here on the 23rd of February, where he talks about Sting's injury and Shield's wrestle war. So that was it for the Gordon Soli update. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, and he's very illuminating. I think we'll agree. Um, <laughs> he, does, he does. He does occasionally bring us some some gold. So I mean, I'll, I'll keep persevering until <laughs> while Soli does the wrestle network, I'll keep on reading them out. <laughs> I just I just imagine something like. Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, Iron Mike Sharp. These are just a few of the biggest names of the 1980. <laughs> I'd love to know what, like, the Dusik brothers were like, or oh, I don't know. I'm just wondering why he picked out those names. Like, he must in his mind think that they are all time greats. Otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned them, right? <laughs> Whoa, doggy, down, doggy, a half dozen dogs, hot dogging, doing the dog double time. So what dog face Rick Steiner wear on his dogs? Ruse, ruse, shoes for your feet, pockets for your stuff. So, let's move on to the review. Uh, February the 25th, 1990, back in their uh, hometown, Greensboro, their, their backyard here. Um, which makes sense at this time, I think. They they, they need to. Uh, we've, we've talked we talked about this at length, uh, Chad, on the um, on the Crockett uh, on the Crockett review. But they must have been thinking about going back to basics a little bit, you know. Yeah. They need to go to where they know their str- their hotbeds, as it were. Um, although I'm guessing they don't, uh, Charles. Go, going forward, they they probably still try to go all around the country. Yeah, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I know that most of their shows were in the bigger shows were in strong cities for them, like St. Louis and Baltimore and Philadelphia. Uh, right. So I'm not really sure about just going on the road regularly. Okay. No, no. It's, but I, I think that actually makes sense for them at this point. They need to like, you know, they, they need to go where they know they're going to get ten thousand people. Um, although that strategy, as we I guess we'll see into '92 and '93, uh, even has its limitations as well. Um, so just before this show starts, my version of this did have a countdown show. Um, I originally had the 24/7 uh, version. I thought I, c- I can't watch that, so I, uh, I went and found the live pay-per-view feed. So we all watched the same version, right? Did you watch the live pay-per-view feed, Charles? Uh, yes, I did. And, and you, Chad? Yeah, but no countout show for either of you. I'm guessing. I, I did not have the countdown. No. I, I didn't either. Um, well, I mean, not a lot happened in this countdown show. It's it's just just Jim Ross for half an hour chilling the show. But a few key little things happen here, which I'm guessing you guys have seen. Um, there was a great showdown between Ole Anderson and Lex Luger um, on on the TV. Um, where essentially what they did is that they reran the Clash 10 angle with Luger as Sting. This was on an edition of Louisville Slugger with Jim Cornette. Uh, yeah. You, you guys have seen this, right? This is yeah, essentially Luger's, This is Luger's face turn, essentially. Um, I thought Ole Anderson was great in that segment. 
Um, uh, but it's exactly the same story. They want Luger to give up the contract to wrestle Flair at Wrestle War. And I actually thought that was quite neat that they put Luger exactly in Sting's spot openly. Um, Charles, what do you think of the, the booking here? I thought the booking to set up the show was actually as good as it could have been, considering the circumstances. So um, that particular episode was a really hot show. There was kind of a funny moment in that segment where Ric Flair is... Do you remember this, Chad? Ric Flair is leaving the ring and ends up slipping on the stairs. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the crowd pops and goes crazy, and Luger is doing everything he can not to just start laughing, biting his lip and everything. But And Flair sold it. That was the best part. He, he just, he, like, the crowd popped, and he just sold it. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think he takes, like, a... He does a little bump and like dusts himself off, if I remember correctly, or only consoles him or whatever. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good moment. <laughs> but, I, do, do you like? I'm really liking Ole Anderson in this little run. I mean, it's not talked about that often. This particular lineup of the Horsemen, but he's really good as the kind of spokesman for the for the team at this point. Um, have you enjoyed his work here? I mean, I think he's like one of the great underrated guy you know promos of all time probably <laughs> um i mean this i think it's selective because he's pretty good here but uh it gets really progressively worse and uh in some ways racist <laughs> very quickly <laughs> right. after this and, okay. and uh, in some ways racist. yeah and then you get yeah. the uh and then you get the swift turn to where he's the black scorpion voice so this is the peak of uh ollie in this run Right. Okay. And and I think and this may not this may be something that shows up in the next observer, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it just because I think it's relevant to the show. Sure. Ric Flair was fired as a booker right before the show started. So right, yeah. Um. So one thing that's always mentioned is that the last weekend where they drew those high ratings you were mentioning with two million viewers that was actually his last weekend of of booking television. So by this point. It was actually being handled by Jim Hurd and Jim Barnett. And then Ole Anderson would take over um, after Capital Combat. Right, okay. And that actually explains a few little notes I've got throughout this show. Because, um, well, as as you'll see, I think that Ric Flair, in his promos around this time, seems distracted. He's not himself. Um, So it it may... uh, Right after this, uh, on the countdown, we have a really, really good promo from Luger. Probably his best babyface promo that we've seen, uh, Chad. But then Flair does a, does a promo, and he seems like quite tired. Like he's not, he, he's he's just not as into it as he usually is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, well, you know, with Ric Flair, you expect like you know, ace promos every time. But there's something not, there's something a little bit off. And I guess if he'd just been fired, that might. <laughs> That he might have had something on his mind. So yeah, and right. I think at the time um, there was a famous line in the Observer where Dave said that um, because he was you know the top star, the world champion, and the head booker that he was starting. Ric Flair was starting to age faster than Jimmy Carter. So that was kind of a famous line in the Observer at the time, and, and I think that that's true. Yeah, but well, you could you could tell there's something uh, there's something uh, there's something up here definitely. Um, we get a clip of the horseman uh, coming in doing a luger squash, and then the Steiners come out and there's a standoff 
Um, and this is kind of leading into the Andersons versus the Steiners, which is quite neat booking, I thought. Um, and Ross explains that the Steiners didn't come out because they have any particular love for Lex Luger. It's just because they hate the Andersons. Um, have you guys seen this stuff, this, uh, this standoff between uh, the Andersons? And I think it's doing a Luger squash in the week before WrestleWar. I don't recall that. I don't know if that made the yearbook or not. It wasn't it, memorable enough was like for me t- to remember. Tim, Tim Horner, someone, someone of that ilk. Yeah, okay. it, it it made the yearbook. It was it was a pretty good segment. I mean, um, you know, Flair saying he's going to go in the ring and take out Luger, and the Horsemen are surrounding the ring, and just when Flair's about to go in the ring, the Steiners show up, and Flair backs off, and they retreat. Okay. So we get a promo from Ole Anderson on the Steiners now, which I thought was pretty. Great, and then R D D T Rick on the floor, um, injuring his head even more. <laughs> uh, we get a clip of the Warriors uh, versus the Skyscrapers from Clash Ten, promo from Michael Hayes on Pillman and Zenk, and uh, a little a little recap of the match from the Midnights and the Rock and Rolls during that U.S. Tag Title Tournament. And Cornette uses the line um, that this is going to be the day that music died, uh, which is I thought was pretty great. Um, more on Cornette's promos uh, later. So, we're getting to the start of the show, and it's uh, Jim Ross and Terry Funk to start. Um, and we go straight from them to Gordon Soley with Terry Long. If I, I'm sorry, if I could just add nothing about the Wrestle War rap. Oh, oh, oh sorry, sorry, Charles. I, I thought, uh, <laughs> um, I, for, I forgot your love for the rap. Well, we get an alternate version of the Wrestle War rap at this point, right? Yes. Um, with different lyrics from the lyrics that I painstakingly wrote and read out last time. So <laughs> <laughs> um, now I think that the lyrics here were weaker than than the lyrics in that first version. Yes, the other version is musically superior. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't. It didn't have a. It didn't have the right flow. And what did he call uh, Sting in that? He was the, what was he the master of? Uh, the etymology. Yes. <laughs> the master of et- entomology. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this was significantly weaker. I understand there are three versions of this, right? Uh, there were actually just two versions. It's just that there were, um, this is just an alternate video to another, like there was a commercial with the version that started the show, but it was just a different video. Right, and, yeah, and they, oh, okay. they played one doing the countdown as well, uh, so I actually got to hear it twice. It's really, it's, it's, I'll put it in, but it, it's terrible, as you'll hear. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, also, uh, also Fox earring. <laughs> oh, yeah. Control. Funk has a really long earring at this point, <laughs> and he's really like jazz for this show. Like, yeah. He's particularly excited. Um yeah, and the, the weird thing about the rest of all rap is that uh, Sting is still in it, right? I mean, they obviously cut two versions of it, but uh, they must have recorded it before the Sting injury. Well, art is art. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I'm just saying that if they took the trouble of making two, they could just get whoever did it in again, you know, to just to do a Stingless version. Did we ever find out who did, actually did the rest of all rap? Do we know who that was? No, I've I've still got a feeling that it's like a Turner executive who um, just has ambitions of like, you know, it's like a little vanity project for someone in the office. Yeah, there. I, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. Uh, I'm a bit of a hip hop connoisseur, as you know, and uh, yeah. it's, it's absolutely woeful. 
the, the standard of rapping there. Um, they should have got in uh, vanilla vanilla ice or some, someone like that. Um, so the, the the one other thing to mention before we go to Soli is that uh, I'm not sure if it's here or later on, but Terry Funk um, keeps on saying it's not happening. It's a sports event, and uh, this is a little jibe at Gorilla Monsoon. Do you guys pick up on this? Because if you watch any uh, Gorilla um, uh, WF pay-per-views from around this time. Monsoon uses this line a lot. It's a happening. Yeah, it's a happening, right? And uh, Funk explicitly says it's not a happening. It's a sport event. So <laughs> I thought that was quite a nice dig at the competition there. Very subtle. Um, and I, I can even see like Ross makes a little face when he says it as well. So I'm, I'm not actually sure if uh, Jim Ross was that comfortable with Terry Funk on the show. He seemed, yeah, like... this. I mean, they'd work together, but I don't. This show to me, like we, I guess I can kind of make my general statement here. But I, I funk on his commentary. I really loved him at the Clash Six, you know, main event call. Yeah. Uh, on this show, he was a little. I think he was good in some spurts, but a little unhinged in others. Where uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he was having the time of his life. <laughs> I think he had more fun doing the show than anything I've ever heard Terry Funk do. So, I mean, he, he was loving life, I guess, kind of like Michelle McCool, but, um, but I, as far as, yeah, as far as an announcer, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I got some fun out of just listening to him because he was so happy, but yeah. as an announcer objectively, yeah, there were some moments that kind of made me cringe a little bit. My, my feeling is that um, Terry Funk, like forgot the fact that he just forgot like that he was on a show. And that he was just talking as he would to one of his friends or something, because like th- there were bits where he was just putting himself over. He was like, you know, um, I can't remember when he says it, but somebody mentions uh, um, somebody's hero on the show. It's it, uh, I can't remember who who they mentioned now, but he was like, well, why aren't why aren't I, I anybody's wrestling hero? And he kind of like brought himself up quite a lot during the uh, during the show itself. But I guess I'll have made specific notes later on. Um, but it was kind of weird. like I felt like Jim Ro- Jim Ross was out of his comfort zone, and uh, when Ross is out of his comfort zone, it's really obvious to me. Um, I think he's out of his comfort zone for all of 1992, for example, with uh, with Jesse. Like he fails to build in chemistry, and um, even though like him and Terry Funk seem like they're friends, they're, they're, he's not he's not comfortable this evening. Anyway, um, Gordon Soley is with uh, Teddy Long. Who says he's brought in a replacement for Dan Spivey? Uh, what's the? Did they say that Spivey's injured? They said he's injured, right? Right. Um, and uh, Long does like a lot of boxing moves during this promo. Uh, so he says he's got like a surprise coming up as well, which isn't like the replacement, but another surprise. So yeah, he promises um, essentially two surprises for yeah, the show. And Gordon Soley says. Um, now over to Gary Capetta, who's in the ring, if you please. <laughs> he says, if you please, a lot. Is that like a, a kind of common, is that a particular to Soli, or is it something they say in a particular part of America? <laughs> I've never heard that one. That kind of sounds like a Capettaism. No, that was Soli that was over to Capetta. Oh, it was Soli that said that. <laughs> oh, well, who knows? He does say, if you please, quite a lot in the Soli updates as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you please. So, our first match, Kevin Sullivan and Buzz Sawyer taking on... And Chad, you told me they were gone. So this program Yeah, I thought they were gone. I did forget. <laughs> I, I promise this is it for them. But yeah, they're back. The dynamic dudes. 
So uh, my first note, of course, is God's for God's sake, these guys are back. I can't believe it. So yeah. um, Kevin Sullivan has a very long ponytail here. Um, he yes, rocking... I thought he was going to trip on it. <laughs> he, he's rocking a particularly interesting look here. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I've got a couple of notes uh, on this that I could mention right now. Um, at one point, Jim Ross compares by Sawyer to Peter Boyle. And uh, Funk then says, I hate to say this, but he looks a lot like my daddy did. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Bounty Dory Funk Senior looks a bit like Buzz Sawyer. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts on this one, Charles? Um, the first thing that I made a note of, and I think that I, I, Turner must have cracked down on WCW at this point because this is the first show where they stopped using real music and everything that they're using on the show is uh, stock music. So the dynamic dudes do not have Wipeout as their theme music <laughs> like they have all the way up until this point. And then there are a few other changes throughout the show too with, with entrance music for wrestlers. But um, I noticed that the dynamic dudes have given up on their skateboards altogether. It's like, we're not even trying to fool you anymore. We're just here and... <laughs> we have the word dudes on the back of our trunks and just deal with it. Um, <laughs> that, that we are who we are. So love it or leave it. Um, <laughs> I thought, I mean, this was a decent match actually. It was nothing earth changing, but it does show, I think that maybe eventually um, Shane and Johnny could have become a solid tag team. Uh, I liked the infighting with, with um, Buzz Sawyer and Kevin Sullivan, that was a really fun spot that seemed to pop the crowd. Um, and I, I, I like the spot where Buzz Sawyer bit um, the back of, I can't remember, I think it was Shane Douglas. They bit his back when he was working it over. Um, and I thought the bear, hurt, the bear hug work was pretty solid. Um, there was a botched head scissor spot that was pretty ugly from Johnny Ace, but um, Sawyer did an amazing vertical suplex not long after that. So I actually thought this was a good match. Um, I like Sawyer and Sullivan as a team. I thought that most of the good stuff was thanks to Buzz Sawyer. And I also made a note that I felt like if this happened on SmackDown now, that people would like it. Right. Chad, any uh, extra thoughts here? Um, probably less high on it than Charles. I did think Boz Sawyer, though, individually in this match was great. I thought he was, like, awesome, bumping around like crazy. His power moves looked good. Uh, he looked vicious in everything he did. Uh, Sullivan didn't annoy me as much as he has in a lot of these shows we've done. And uh, I'll give Shane Douglas some credit, too, because I thought most what he did in this match was good but then we come to Johnny Ace which uh, he botched the head scissors that Charles talked about he had a really ugly monkey flip and I thought he was pretty poor overall so I mean I thought this was a pretty good match it was actually better than I thought it'd be going in but uh, I mean as an opener it's fine but I didn't think it was nothing extraordinary um, Yeah, I, I actually have a, a, a few other things to mention about this match um that there is the dissension between sullivan and sawyer and i guess that those two were just two singles guys slapped together for one match here is that or were they actually tagging at this point um, um he was he was part of like sullivan's little group at this time right with cactus jack yeah this was the beginning of it yeah all oh, right okay um so i mean th there's one point where they actually slap each other and i guess the takeaway from that is that these 
but both guys are so demented that this doesn't actually signal any sort of turn here. Um, but then moments after that, you get a spot where Sullivan distracts the ref in a nice bit of a kind of heel scheming here. Um, and Sawyer does a suplex on the floor on Douglas. So my question was, are these heels smart or are they mad or are they both? Can you be both at once, like kind of <laughs> like kind of insane, but also clever in this way? I, 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 I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing that they're doing, that they're kind of doing like demented spots and smart spots. <laughs> legitimate quiz. Yeah. I kind of yeah. like them as madmen savant. <laughs> Um, but Sawyer also makes a kind of like high pitch kind of pig squeal noise throughout this match, um, which uh, does he did he do that before? I guess he did. Not not. I don't think he did that when he was working JTEX. Uh, did you hear that, uh, Chad? The the high pitch squealy. Noise? Yeah, he does. Uh, he he. Buzz Sawyer can be a pretty verbal worker in yeah. the uh, the ring, and it was pretty audible here, but. After hearing or after watching so many um, Manami Toyota matches and All Japan Women, I don't even hear wrestlers anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I will say it does have to be pretty bad uh, considering the amount of Joshi I've watched in the past year. Uh, Yeah, uh, (laughs) you practically have to be screaming. So, yeah, I I mean, it wasn't enough in this match that I uh, that like it took me aback or anything. So, well. My big note for this match was that Kevin Sullivan seems to be playing Ivan Koloff. Like every time, I don't know if you noticed, every time Sullivan got in the ring, he lost advantage um, and then tagged Sawyer in, who then did some kind of power moves. And he hit quite a lot of power moves here. We got a um, we got a side salto suplex, a belly to belly suplex, that pretty awesome uh, snap suplex that you mentioned, um, uh, Charles. Uh, he did hit his flying splash from the top um mostly the dynamic dudes were getting their heads kicked in which kept me happy um but uh, i thought that sawyer was probably pretty strong in this match i mean it was essentially a 15 minute showcase for him and he looked pretty great um but i thought that was interesting that they kind of like this was really a match to show off sawyer's offensive arsenal um do, do you agree with that do, do you think that they kind of i mean sullivan seemed like the weaker guy on the team um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think to me, Sawyer was the, uh, definite highlight, but, uh, but yeah, Sullivan was somebody that they were able to kind of take advantage of when he got in there, the momentum would sort of shift, it seemed like. Okay. And I, I guess that's like, Kevin Sullivan's kind of like a set, always like a semi-manager almost, like t- half wrestler, half manager sort of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. He kind of had that weird vibe going on for a while. Um, um, so no- Norman is with Missy Hyatt now. Oh, should I? What, what did Meltzer? Yeah, yeah l- let me check the Meltzer star rating. I always forget to do that. Um, Meltzer gave it two and a quarter. Okay. Yeah, I'd probably be about two and a half. So. Uh, I went three. Yeah. I liked it. I'm I'm more towards that as well. I thought it was good. You know, if that's what they were trying to do, showcase Buzz Sawyer. They they did. They certainly did that. And you come out of it thinking that Buzz Sawyer is a pretty good wrestler. So um, We go over to Missy Hyatt, who's with Norman, wearing a helicopter hat and a teddy stuck to his chest. Um, so you're, you're kind of our fashion expert, Charles. Uh, what do you think of this look? 
Uh, yeah, I, not not the best look for her, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, I thought Norman was kind of um, creepy in this, to be honest. Like, I felt like he needed to just leave well enough alone, and I felt a little bit sorry for Missy Hyatt. Because he's, he's trying to get to bases with her. Yeah, I, I thought this was horrible. Chad, Chad did you... Uh... Oh, yeah, this was this was no good. From uh, Missy wearing a tuxedo to her perm to Norman, it was uh, bad all around. I, I take the Eugene stuff over this. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, so the next match, then, is Cactus Jack Manson versus Norman. My first note here is that Truth or Consequences is the coolest name of any town anywhere in the world. Would you agree with... Where do you live? Truth or Consequences. Oh, that's an awesome yeah, place. Yeah. New Mexico. And a good, was, good name, too, for him to pick. Like, that's a perfect hometown. It was named after a game show um, that Bob Barker hosted in the 1970s. What was it? Oh, yeah. Wow. That's nowhere near as cool as the, the name suggests. No. <laughs> I was thinking like Wild Bill named it or something in the 1800s, but yeah. Truth or Consequences. Does, does he stick with that all the way through? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's pretty much every time Cactus Jack is introduced is from Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. So, um, the, the only other two notes I've got going into this is that, um, uh, well, I've got I've got a couple. Um, Terry Funk has the line <laughs> that Norman's got the head of a buffalo and the body of Roseanne, which was uh, <laughs> quite a good joke for 1990. Uh, <laughs> Jim Ross loves uh, calling Gary Capetta the world's most dangerous announcer. Um, and uh, I know that Capetta said in that interview that um, that actually did a lot for his career, that him calling him the world's most dangerous announcer because it made him stand out. Because um, they didn't really acknowledge ring announcers much during the 80s. Like that, you know, Dr. Tom Miller, Chad, he, he was barely like a character on TV. Was he? Yeah, he didn't get much of a mention. But, I mean, Capetta... <laughs> Even too, I mean, I mean, Ross would be good to name his name. Like, let's go back up to Gary Michael Capetta. But I, I've never, I guess, really liked him calling him that because I didn't, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. He he does explain it. Like, I think, like, I can't remember, but he, he there was some like situation that he he saw it out at some point where it gave him this that gave yeah. him this moniker of being the world's most dangerous announcer. I, I just I have to add that I could listen to Tom Miller announce Ric Flair all day. Uh, it's one of my favorite things in wrestling. The Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Like Ric Flair is <laughs> one word. That's one of my favorite things about wrestling ever. I think. If, if you're wondering who Tom Miller is, by the way, uh, just in case there's anyone who doesn't know, you hear him at the start of every show. He's the guy who says, uh, um, you know, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, he's, he's the, the guy who says, yeah. 60 minute time limit right um and uh i have been trying to find Capetta saying that to switch over to the 90s well, i've kind of become attached to the tom miller one now it'd be a shame to change it chad wouldn't it <laughs> yeah i agree let's keep tom um uh yeah and the the other thing is that jim ross uh, as as we go into this match says um this match is so- certainly not going to be worked in the classic catches catch can style <laughs> right <laughs> so chad how, how true is that statement um, actually, this again was better than I expected. I must admit, uh, Norman, I don't think was, uh, was any good at all. He had two different shoes on 
And, uh, you know, seeing him versus Sullivan have one of the most uninspired grudge match brawls we've ever seen in Clash uh, 10, I was not uh, looking forward to him here when what I knew would be a brawl. But uh, I know I was a little critical the way Cactus bumped in the uh, Masquerous match. But here, I think it called for it, and boy, he bumped for two. I mean, he took a nasty spill to the outside, and then he does the uh, back body drop onto the guardrail, which is nasty. Uh, so Cactus, I thought, was working uh, pretty good. I'm not going to say this match is, again, as a lost classic or anything, but I was sort of expecting the worst with Norman in there. And, uh, and, I mean, it turned out okay. It ends up with Norman sitting on top of Cactus and getting the pinfall, which is what it is. But uh, a little bit better than I expected, I must say. Charles? Uh, I thought this was a horrible match. Uh, it was really, really bad. And, you know, I've been watching yearbooks for so long that um, I've been kind of spoiled and haven't had to watch a lot of bad matches in a long time. And this was a bad match. Um, I thought Jim Ross was burying it to a point that it was almost unprofessional. Like, it really stood out to me. Um it, it, and I'm someone who has always sided with Jim Ross over Gorilla Monsoon when that topic comes up. But the way that Jim Ross kind of craps on this match made me have a greater appreciation for Gorilla Monsoon when he's calling a bad match. But, um, I mean, Cactus did take a few good bumps, which I thought were really nice. But this match had no heat. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember in Mick Foley's book, Have a Nice Day, he told a story about this match that because I think Ric Flair's birthday was the same day of the show. And Flair had a birthday party after the show was over. And Funk told um, or Terry Funk told Mick Foley after the show that Norman tried to be the angel and couldn't because Cactus Jack wouldn't be the devil. And so that's why the match didn't work. Um, I mean, Cactus has his moments. He outworks Norman. I, I think that's kind of an interesting viewpoint, and I, I wanted to bring that up to see what you thought of that uh, opinion as we're going through this. I don't know. I mean, uh, nor Foley wouldn't be the devil for Norman to be the angel. He, he wouldn't like. He wasn't being heelish enough in this match, or right. He wasn't really healing or playing to the crowd as much as he should have. I just think he pinballed for him, um, and I mean. If you're a heel working against a monster babyface, I, d- I don't know. I don't know where you go, like when it's this kind of situation where it's a big fat guy who's the face against a much smaller heel. Um, well, uh, I guess he didn't do many things to get heat. I, I guess that's fair as a criticism, but I don't really know what more you could have. Like he did his best, didn't he? Don't you think? Chad, any any thoughts? Um. Yeah, I, I guess I kind of think he did about his best. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, we, what, what, do we, what, what did Meltzer give us? Let's have a look. One and a half. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, I, I was going in. I mean, that Sullivan versus Norman matches. Uh, I, I don't do negative stars. That's probably a dud. I mean, I think that's one of the worst matches we've seen doing these shows, Parv. Yeah. Uh, this one I thought was... Uh, you know, slightly better again, though, at best, it's probably like one and three quarters, maybe two stars. Uh, so right. I'm not not high praise at all. Uh, uh, I I went dud on this one. 
Yeah, I, I'm not going to rate this, but uh, I, I would, I would say, um, like, I'm sure I read someone's, like, Norman is a bit underrated. People say he's actually like quite a good worker. Is there any truth to that? Like, oh, hopefully not. I'm surely not. I mean, I mean, he was a big guy in Canada as far as like a name for a little while, but as far as being a big worker guy, he's not. There's nothing I've seen of this or anything else when he goes to WWF that would make him better than uh, certainly somebody even like Earthquake. Um, believe it or not, he actually had some really good matches with Owen Hart in Stampede in 1987 and 1988. But he worked a completely different style than he did here um, and was a, a little bit more mobile. He actually reminded me in some ways of Jerry Blackwell. Um, not as good, but very similar in how he worked. So, um, yeah, you, you might be surprised when you see Stampede, but I agree with you that, it, yeah, just off of this, there's nothing that would make you even remotely think that. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's stop talking about Norman now. <laughs> uh, Gordon Soli's with um, Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. Um, and I, th- I think this is just an amazing promo uh, by Cornette um, on the topic of change. He, he builds up a series of things that change and then he talks about how some things never change and the idea that the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express you know is never going to change you know that never changes that that's a major deal type thing um, and I thought my one note here is that WWE scriptwriters could not script something as great as this Cornette promo that was my uh, line here Any anybody have any thoughts on this promo? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was amazing. Also, I, I loved it. Yeah. I, I love the overarching theme. I thought it was fantastic. Maybe Cornette wrote that in advance. Maybe like it sounded like he maybe scripted it himself. Or if, I mean, if he was going if he was going off the cuff, that's quite impressive to uh, to do something like that. But I, it's 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 promos like this that I don't think are possible in a modern WWE context. And it's one of the many reasons why I'm not very engaged. It, it, Chad, do you, do you agree with that, that a promo like this is essentially be impossible today? To... Um, yeah, I mean, you're not going to see a one-minute little snippet. I mean, this was about a minute promo that was rapid-fire delivered, so uh, yeah. you're, you're not going to see that. And uh closest you'll see that is on Saturday morning slam, so <laughs> that's... Can, I mean, can they bring that back? Do they have to have, like, a 15-minute seg pro? I certainly think that could be helpful, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, now they are, I will admit they are doing a little bit more of this type of promo, uh, with their WWE app stuff where they have little promos on the app, but, uh, so they are kind of phasing it back in a new way. I, I will admit, but, uh, certainly the stuff you see on television is very long winded compared to this. So the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight's now, and uh, well, this is one of the big talking points for this show. So I'll, I'll start with you, Charles. Uh, I thought this was an, a fantastic match, probably one of the best of, of 1990. I think I had it pretty high for the year. Um, this is everything that's great about the rivalry in one match. Uh, I thought that they were out to steal the show. I, I don't know if they quite it or not but it's it's debatable for sure um i my favorite sequence in this match which i'm sure we'll talk about more is when is the stuff involving Cornette, where um 
Cornette gets in the shoving match. With, or actually, what happens is that Stan Lane pushes Nick Patrick, and Nick Patrick pushes Stan Lane back. So Cornette gets on the apron and you know starts poking Nick Patrick on the chest. You can't put your hands on him. And then so Nick Patrick gets fed up and starts poking him back. And Cornette loses his temper, takes off his jacket, gets in the ring, and wants to fight Nick Patrick. <clears throat> the match comes to a complete halt. And... Um, you know, and then Cornette loses his balance and falls out of the ring and then is embarrassed and starts punching the cameraman. It's just like it's such a scene that I it, it, it's just it's brilliant. It's it, absolutely brilliant. There was and, a few, there's a few things on that, Charles, right? Nick Patrick doesn't just poke Cornette in the chest. He basically like drills a hole, a hole yeah. into his chest. I mean, he's really aggressive on that. On, the, on that. Um, I think like last time we were on the show, Charles was basically Tommy Young's last appearance. And I think this show established Nick Patrick as like the next major referee. Would you agree with that? This was like a coming out party for Nick Patrick, this show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's like really aggressive when he's point, uh, poking that chest. And um, I have to say, when Cornette was going nuts, uh, taking his jacket off, and then he like, he puts his dukes up and he's ready to fight. It's one of the funniest moments I think I've ever seen in wrestling. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's really funny. So um, it's a great, it's a great little comedy spot. <laughs> anyway, c- continue, Charles. Sorry, I didn't... and then just you know the match was just classic Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll. Um, you know, I, 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 it's pretty much what it is. I, I, there's not too much to say about it except for to me, this is the rivalry that kind of defines tag team wrestling, and this is probably their best match against each other. So um, it was fantastic. Chad? Yeah, this is, uh, I I know I'd watched this before, before the yearbook, but uh, for some reason it didn't really resonate, and then I watched it with the yearbook, and of course loved it, and then I, uh, I watched it again the other night for this show, and I'm, I'm really starting to think this may be one of my favorite tag matches of all time, like it's, it's in the contention, uh, and I mean the start is a big shine sequence for the baby faces but with the uh with the all the comedy that they mixed in that gets a great pop i mean to me this is a type of match where if you're one of the people that says well you know a a wrestling match is only successful if the crowd's going crazy well this this works and if you're a i guess a work rate type fan that really likes a lot of action i mean this match has that it has a a southern build it has comedy it uh, i mean the strikes were pretty stiff i i can't think of much more of kind of a hodgepodge all-in-one type uh match that you get from this one and uh it's it's pretty incredible and i think i mean Cornette really i mean he's been good but this performance and this type of building i mean they'd seen the midnight express for uh for a long time from, uh, you know, they debuted late 1985 and been pretty consistent within the promotion since then. So we're talking about over four years, this tag team's been here. Of course, the Rock and Roll Express has been a staple for a majority of that time too. So for these two teams to kind of have a match in front of this crowd and get it over and for it to be as fresh as it is, uh, I think it's a true accomplishment that's unmatched by uh, a lot of tag matches. Yeah, but I, I think you nailed it there, Chad, when you said that this is a this is the sort of match that can appeal to like both ends of the spectrum. I, I mean, the note I've got here is that this would be a match that both Matt D 
and Johnny Sorrow would mark out for, right? Yeah. So, and yeah. uh, so I, I've made a couple of uh, my kind of Matt D style notes here, <laughs> um, where some of the little bits of psychology um, maybe, uh, I mean, neither of you have mentioned it, but one of the things that I've got is that there's a very good spot early on where Lane goes for a counter after a leapfrog and Gibson shut, stops short and elbow drops him. I thought that would did a terrific job of establishing early on just how well these two teams know each other. So it's like, even though it's business as usual, it's not as well because, you know, they know each other's kind of tricks and things. So it's kind of adding another layer of um, strategy to the whole thing. Um, and this is in amongst all of the all of the Cornette stuff as well. Um, and then there is a little moment of dissension between the Midnights here, where Lane pushes Eaton on the outside, which added like another layer of interest here. I don't know if they were teasing something down the line. Um, and then we get another spot where they establish um, how well they know each other, where we get a st- the first time where Morton and Eaton are in the ring. Morton goes for two arm drags, and then Eaton ducks out for the third because he know he knows it's coming. And I just thought that this, you know the psychology of that is off the is off the charts really. Um, then there's a spot where Morton climbs up on Eaton's shoulders. Did you see that? Yes. Uh, and yeah, I love that spot. <laughs> and Terry Funk on commentary just started marking out like he was just uh, started losing his shit over that. Um, what else have I got here? We we got Lane giving Cornette CPR at one point. <laughs> yeah. That that needs to be mentioned. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was amazing. That's um. another great little spot where Cornette gets socked right in the mouth by uh, I think it was Robert Gibson. Uh, that was after the Midnight's get a uh, double-headed headbutt each other, and then Cornette goes flailing to the outside and gets. Uh, gets consoled by Stan Lane as he is just, I mean, Cornette sell job, holding his head. He's throwing some phantom punches. It's, it's, it's a wild scene. Did, did, did you notice that Jim Ross was kind of getting on Cornette for his weight on commentary a little bit? He said, like, uh, Cornette waddles over at one point. And he, and yeah, then when... this this was like peak area of, <laughs> uh, of Cornette, of Ross getting on Cornette for his weight. And then uh, we also got a no uh, Charles's favorite joke: the mixed doubles, and his par- partner was a man. That joke was told at the beginning of this, which is. And th- there's a bit where Cornette is stuck on the top rope, and he says, um, "If he, if the top rope isn't going to break under the under the strain of having Cornette on it, so <laughs> it's just, yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of uh, jibes from, uh, and Funk was giving him jibes too because they were rival commentators at this time." So uh, some of Funk's lines are quite funny as well. Um, what else have we got? Uh, the, the Rock and Rolls uh, did some really good uh, teamwork um, during the early portion of this match, but it wasn't quite an extended shine sequence. I don't know if you noticed that. It, it kept on going back and forth a lot more than a normal uh, tag match, and I thought that played into how well these two knew each other. Like, the Midnights couldn't get anything going, but it's not like the Rock and Rolls were dominating that early kind of you know, traditional shine area either. Um, then when Eaton and Morton were trading punches, I thought that was tremendous. They did that uh, kind of big double bump to the outside. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of cool stuff here. The, the, uh, the, the drop toe hold into the elbow uh, spot by the MX 
uh, really cool. Um, the arm drop into the hammerlock from Ethan. I know that's a spot he does quite a lot, but it's a like the control segment from the Midnight's I thought was just amazing. And then the last note I had is that the timing of Cornette's interference is awesome. So they've just hit the hot tag to, to Gibson and Cornette cuts it dead with a racket. So he's basically interfering at the moment of greatest impact. I thought like you, you'll never see interference better time than that. Um, and, the, and the Rock and Rolls um, ended up winning with a with a double cradle. So I thought this was an excellent match. Really, really yeah. good. I'd probably go... Well, let's see what Meltzer went for it. Um, Meltzer went four and a quarter. Right. Uh, when I watched it for the yearbook, that's exactly what I went on it. And uh, when I did my rankings, I actually had this ranked at the 16th uh, match of 1990 worldwide. Uh there's, there was a lot of good stuff. Um, I'm, I'm willing to go higher than that now. Uh, at least four and a half for me. It's, uh, I think the first time I watched it, I admired it and uh, thought it was good. But, I mean, it really holds up to where, I mean, this was the second time I'd watched this match in, I guess, about an eight-month uh, time period. And it was still uh, amazing. Charles, a uh, star rating, did you... Four and a quarter from Meltzer. Um, I would go four and a half also. Yeah. yeah. I, I I would also be go four and a half. Um, if, there, if there's ever a match that gains something from context, though, I, I think this is it. Like, a lot of the little subtleties in, you know, what your typical rock and roll match is and what your typical Midnight's match is. If you don't know those things, a lot of those little subtleties will, will be lost, I think. But, I don't. Um, I, mm, I I disagree with that. I think this is a, a great kind of introductory match for a a, a per, prospective wrestling fan, because right. you get you get a uh, a lot of different styles utilized in some of their best uh, uses. And I think I think I mean I do think it's enriched, obviously, if you know the history. Yeah. But I think you can go into this match cold. Uh, I'll use them as a template. Uh, Brad. Watched this match the other night, I know, and he he loved it too. So that was just somebody that's not too too familiar with these two teams really enjoyed it. So, right, we have talked. We were just talking about uh, Brad as the as the lawnmower man of of wrestling. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I did, did, just to explain that, Chad, uh, it's, it was you know that bit where um, he gets uh, uh, lawnmower man gets plugged in. And he gets basically like all the world's information um, yeah. in like a in like thirty seconds. That's that's essentially what Brad is doing wrestling wise. <laughs> like he's catching up on like twenty years of wrestling in you know a week. So right. Um, yeah. No. I, I. I mean. It. I agree. It would be a great introductory match. Obviously. Um, but I think it also gained. It's like you know you can watch The Godfather ten times, and on the tenth time it, it, it's uh, it's gained something. But I, I think sure. this gained. I think this gained something from having seen a lot of other uh, matches from these two. Right. Um, do, do you think this is better than uh, their Midnight, their Fantastics matches? Mm, I, I do. I think so. I think on this rewatch, it was for me. Did, do you think so, Charles? As well, have you seen those Fantastics matches recently? Um, not recently, but going on memory, I would say the same thing. Right. Okay. Because I, I I've got a lot of those at about four and a half as well. So I'd I'd have to think about. Um, it, there's not a lot in it. Oh God! 
the mutant psycho savage, no mercy, demolition spree! Legion of Doom! What do road warriors wear on the road to destruction? Bruce. Bruce! Shoes for your feet, pockets for your stuff. Gordon Soley's with the road warriors, and uh, Hawk uh, claims that they went to the back alleys and streets of Chicago to prep for this match. Um, and they put 16 guys in hospital. So, <laughs> there we are. Well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't live here at the time. <laughs> uh, Sean, Sean Michaels needed him at uh, Syracuse outside the nightclub then to fend <laughs> off the 12 guys that beat him up or whatever. But, like, I just got an image of, like, the Row Warriors going into, like, picking on some poor tramp, you know. Like, the, some guy is, like, homeless on the street, and then they get these two jacked-up dudes beating them up and putting them in hospital. It's a bit yeah. kind of... It's a bit American psycho, if anything. Yeah, um, true. So, uh... Right, so we've got the Row Warriors versus, inverted commas, the Skyscrapers here. Now, if you recall, the Skyscrapers were Sid, were Sid, were Sid and uh, Dan Spivey. But tonight, the Skyscrapers are Mean Mark, Callus, and a Masked Man. So who is this Masked Man, Chad? Uh, Jack Victory. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's actually, uh, it's actually a Mike Enos of... Uh, of AWA fame at this point in time, uh, under under the mask. Yeah, no, he's actually a lot bigger than you'd think he is. Like, I don't. When you think of the Beverly Brothers, right, you don't think of either of them as being particularly big. But Mike Enos was like six four, and uh, well, at least two hundred and fifty pounds. But he looked bigger than that at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, he's not. He's certainly not like dwarfed by Taker. I mean, there's not a huge discrepancy yeah. in their size i was honestly surprised by that because in my mind like the beverly brothers aren't particularly big yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i mean th- poor jack victory right he uh yeah i don't know where he was at he could have they could have used him here but and he's on termination notice so <laughs> he's uh he's about to go um <clears throat> so yeah i mean right at the start of this match ellering takes uh, teddy long out uh, with a punch and this is a street fight uh, so all four men star in the ring. Chad. Um, <laughs> maybe sound like a broken record, but I, I got to say, I thought this was not bad. Um, very, very quick. Uh, I, I mean, to me, for a Road Warriors match in 1990, I don't know. I thought this might be as good as you can get. They were they stiffed the hell out of uh, the skyscrapers and kind of brawled around and did their thing for five minutes and then... It ended, and they won. Uh, they ended up with the victory. So I, I didn't think this was terrible, terrible at all. Really, actually, for a short, compact, uh, pretty action-packed brawl. Charles, I would agree with that. I, I, I definitely isn't anything I feel the need to watch again. But I think it worked for its slot on the card and for what it was, and. Um, I, w- I wouldn't criticize it too much. I do think that the, I mean, the, the bump that uh, Mike Enos took at the end for the clothesline, I mean, it, it, it's kind of hard to not take a huge bump for the Doomsday Device, but I, I, I'm still always impressed when I see someone take that bump really well, and I thought he took the bump very well, especially for a guy that big. Um, I, um, I actually think the fight with Doom after the match was better than the match itself. I thought that was excellent. Yeah. Um, and I'd probably go a star and a half for everything. 
Yeah, well, uh, Malta went star and a, <coughs> star and a quarter. Um, my my big note for this is that I don't think the Royal Warriors are as good at brawling as they should be, considering their gimmick. Like, I think they should be a little bit better as brawlers. But um, this 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 was essentially to transition from the mess that was the skyscrapers at this point to Doom, right? And in terms of doing its job, it did that. Um, Butch Reed and Ron Simmons, when they strolled out wearing tuxes and shades, I thought they looked as cool as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I always think that a black man in a white tux looks cool. <laughs> I was a big I was a big Puff Daddy fan in 1997, and uh, that was the kind of look that he he rocked quite a lot. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if uh, Butch Reed ever looked cooler than he did in uh, in this moment, but they had a pretty pretty decent post-match brawl um, there, and I thought it was a decent way to kickstart the feud um, and got and got them out of the mess of the skyscrapers because Teddy Long was the manager, so it, it made sense to just transition across. Decent, uh, decent booking. Yeah, yeah, and Teddy teased it, and uh, again, I mean, uh, it sort of seems like the coming out party for Doom. I mean, when they lost their masks, they got better, but uh, this this segment here really felt like okay, Doom's a player now. So I enjoyed that. The the only other note is that very very excited Terry Funk <laughs> said that um Teddy Long is the only man who can eat a banana sideways and still take it down, <laughs> which made me which was like pretty harsh comment from him, um, from the the the, the peanut head. Um, uh, so. Next match now is um, yeah. Fabulous, Fabulous Freebirds versus um, Brian Pillman. And now I have to stop here because there's been a bit of controversy here in the UK. <laughs> there's, a, there's a film that came out recently called World War Z. Have you, said, have you seen that film that came out? Like, have you seen the trailers for it? Um, and, well, here in the UK, we don't say Z. We say, um, we say Z. You know, X, Y, Z. So there's been a bit of a campaign on a radio show that I listen to, to always refer to that film as World War Z, to uh, to resist American imperialism. So um, I'm going to call uh, in, in to respect that. I'm going to call uh, Zenkia the Z Man. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> it, that was always uh, when I used to watch Sesame Street. That always used to uh, spin me out that they said Z instead of Z because I that was the first time I came across it really. But I guess uh, did you guys know that we say Z and not Z? Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, <laughs> I there. I, this isn't on this show, but something funny that Terry Funk was doing at this time on Worldwide, um, which he was the host of along with Chris Cruz is he would, instead of calling him the Z-Man, he would call him Z-Man, as if that was his name, Z-Man. <laughs> and, um, and Chris Cruz would say, it's not Z-Man, it's the Z-Man. And Terry Funk would say, that's what I said, Z-Man. And so, yeah, that's just like their running joke all the time on Worldwide. It was pretty funny. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I do, I mean, coming back to Meltzer's uh, talking point earlier, I do think this may be a little bit of a waste uh, to saddle Brian Pillman with uh, Zenk at this point. But um, the Freebirds come out still wearing their free with the breakfast cereal box 3D glasses. Um, they, I think these glasses look terrible. Uh, once they take them off, Hayes looks much better in eyeliner than, uh, than Garvin. 
<laughs> I, I think that Hayes can pull off that look uh, better than his partner. Would you agree with that, uh, Charles? <laughs> yeah. And with, without going too much into the match yet, just a thought that I kept having watching this is that I really think that regardless of who was running WCW in the early 90s, they all thought way too much of the Freebirds at this point. Um, because they're put in this, I think this may be the longest tag match on the show. I didn't time anything. If it wasn't the longest, it felt the longest. Yeah. And, and I just, I kept thinking why it seems like that they were a team that kept getting put in these, um, workhorse positions all the time that weren't workhorses. Yeah. Um, I mean the, the, we've, we've discussed this a good bit part that the free birds are, uh, not 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 too cool by 1990 there's no other way to say it so yeah yeah um i mean what is there to say about this match it was just like um i read like there was some i'll I'll just tell you some bits that i liked okay um there was a bit where uh, michael hayes did an amazing jab in pillman's face well that was a pretty great punch um i was entertained by the fact that zenk sleeper was called the the z-lock or the, or the Z-Log. <laughs> um, you know, that's entertainingly lame, I thought. Uh, Pillman's chops seemed a bit light during the star. Like, he's, like they seemed like very, very light chops. Um, and there was some extremely dull mat work by Garvin on Zenk, during which he said, yeah, 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 over and over again. <laughs> and F- Funk on commentary said he likes to repeat himself, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, I thought this as a face and power sequence was really poor and boring. And overall, the match was pretty bad. So everybody basically agree with that. I mean, yeah, well, I think I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chad. Well, I was, I was just, I, was, I got to tell you, like going into this match, I, I, I did peek a look at the time and I was shocked that it went 24 minutes. And then uh, when the match started, you did have a double face in peril sequence, which I was real excited about, kind of coming off our AWA watching to have a match that sort of followed that structure. And I thought the face in peril sequence on um, Pillman was shockingly uh, very good, actually. Uh, you know, the, the Freebirds were using kind of all their tools and tricks to stall and get heat and do whatever, but... Uh, but I thought it was it was fairly good, and then uh, and then you get the hot tag to Zink, and for me the match just died. Like the last eight minutes of the match, like up until that point, I was really kind of ready to champion this match and uh, go to bat for it. But then uh, Hayes gives a very stiff, awkward clothesline to Zink that starts that face and peril sequence. Then you get the terrible headlock, which went way too long. Uh, and then the finish seemed a little disjointed here. So I, I liked the first half a good bit. Uh, second half, there just wasn't much to it. And overall, I think it was too long. Um, I go I go as far as to say that the face and peril sequence with Zenk in this match is one of the worst I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to mention, uh, Charles, I've noticed that you talk about the like little production details and things. Do you think on this show they were told to talk into the camera more than usual because it seemed like both Garvin and Hayes were making a real point of talking to the camera. And I think later on, there's a quite a long bit in the Flair Luger match where, you know, we're, we're taken inside the ring and we can actually hear what the ref is saying and stuff. Do, do you think that was like 
a little kind of change that they were trying to make? Uh... You, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I, I think that was kind of a constant thing in WCW. And when you get into the late nineties, it's something that always drove me crazy was that wrestlers were speaking to the camera during their entrances and Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heaton or Bobby Heenan would just keep talking as if they didn't know what was happening. Um, so they're just talking over the wrestler, talking to the camera. But like on this show, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think in general that's more that's not a WWF thing because I think I've read before, maybe in Lita's book actually, that they're told not to look directly at the camera in the WWF, and they're also told um, not to speak to it. So, um, and, and you know what? I actually think that's probably a, a good thing. Right. No, I, I, I probably agree with you, to be honest. Um, Meltzer went a star and a quarter. No, half a star for this match. He said it, it was 24 minutes, 30 seconds, which was about 25 minutes too long. <laughs> he, <laughs> he says that Garvin was just awful. Um, the NWA has just a few weeks to decide on whether to allow his contract to extend for another year or not. Um, and if there was anything on the borderline, he did a great job of uh, hurting his own case here. And uh, I'd agree. If you're trying to get this roster down to 30, 32 men, get rid of Garvin now. I mean, he's terrible. Gar- Garvin is someone who's like, I know um, Will doesn't like him, Charles, but I honestly like I like his match against Flair in the cage. But from like by this point, he's woefully like, terrible. Yeah, and I think Michael Hayes still had a little bit to offer, probably outside of the ring, because he was a great talker. Yeah. But, yeah, he's another guy they could have gotten out of the ring and and just maybe put with some wrestlers that needed a mouthpiece. But, like, the things that I made notes of on this match were more things about the announcing than the match itself, because the match itself I just thought was so bland. But... um Again, it's another example, and this is something I, I would have never thought before, but Jim Ross, just if he's watching a bad match, does not try to make it better. And this was another example of that. They were making jokes. They were ignoring the match. I mean, they were doing whatever. I mean, it was pretty cool to hear the story about um, Paul Bosch demonstrating the sleeper hold um, during World War II uh, <laughs> to the military. Actually, I thought that was an amazing story. Yeah, and I was really... I was really intrigued by it, um, and I laughed when um, Terry Funk went on his rampage about believing in yourself, and then screamed, "Jimbo Diddley Ross, do you believe in yourself or not?" Um, <laughs> he called so, him. I always call him Jim Jimbo Diddley Ross. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I mean, I, I I enjoyed the announcing in this, but yeah, the match was just not there. Oh, something else that was interesting. WCW is always trying to brand themselves as being like legitimate and the WWF was just a cartoon show. So tell me this, how did they know to start the um, Bad Street USA music when Brian Pillman and Tom Zink were doing their oh, Freebirds impersonation? I forgot um, about that. that and, and not only that, but that was obviously planned out in advance. It had to have been for them to start the music. But Pillman is on one side of the ring and Zink is on the other side of the ring and they're not actually doing the Freebirds routine because usually Hayes would stand on the middle rope and Garvin would look up and they would just kind of point at each other and they're on opposite sides. So um, the whole, it was just really kind of stupid to me. Like I I actually find that really jarring. I felt like it was something right out of like um, Scotty too hotty, you know, too, uh, what were they called? Too cool and Rikishi. 
yeah. <laughs> it was like something right out of like that era. Just, so to see it here in 1990 was uh, really like random and odd because I don't think I've there's been a spot like that in any of the shows that we've seen so far, Chad. So um, I find that really strange. <laughs> right. Um, just to point on the commentators, uh, Charles. Now on the boards, I've been one guy who's been willing to bat for Gorilla Monsoon. And, uh, you know, my boy, Jesse Ventura. And, like, I know there are people who aren't, like, I don't understand it. I can't understand it. But there are some people who aren't that high on Ventura as a color man. But my point is always that those guys earn their money not doing the good matches, but doing the bad matches. <laughs> they they make bad wrestling watchable. Um, and it's something that I, it's something that you we've definitely picked up on these shows, Chad, that Jim Ross has still got a little bit of that smark in him as well. And he doesn't like if a match is bad. He doesn't really do a lot to dig it out or make it fun. Or would you agree with that, Chad? Yeah, Jim Ross seems like the uh, first ROH announcer in some of these matches. That's what he kind of calls the match a lot. Do you actually think he he's better when he gets when he when he when he's under WF uh, rules? Hmm. <laughs> Because I mean, the traditional the traditional wisdom is to say that, uh, or the cool thing to say is that Jim young Jim Ross was really really good, and once he got to Raw, he lost it. I mean, that's the kind of that's the cool kid line. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll see him when he gets with Tony because I really like him and Tony as a pairing in '91. Right. But uh, but I mean, his mid south stuff. But I mean, I think Jim Ross is really really good at calling the big matches. Yeah, but to me, he's really annoying calling the uh, not so good matches because I do feel like he's burying the wrestlers and the product. What, what do you think, uh, Charles? You're watching a, quite a lot of 1997 at the minute. Yeah, I, I never would have thought that about Jim Ross until I watched the show. Uh, it's something I had a skewed opinion on because I'm watching good matches because I'm watching a yearbook. So, mm-hmm. um, so that is definitely something that I have come around on and I can really see and respect your point of view a little bit more on that now. Um, in 1997, I think it, it, that's an interesting year for Jim Ross as an announcer, just because it's like Vince took the gloves off. And so he's talking a lot about, um, background and, um, you know, he, he's talking about the finer points of holds a little bit more, uh, than a typical WWF announcer was. So I don't know if Vince just told him, say what you want and just turned him loose because Jim Ross is doing a lot of his factoids and making points that you don't often hear in WWF commentary in 1997. Um, and plus, I think he s- sounded a little bit more enthusiastic even during the bad matches than he did in the bad matches in WCW. So I'm not ready to say that I like him better in that environment, but I will say that he I like him more than I thought in that environment. Right. Okay. I'm not, I mean, I, uh, I mean, for me, I, I, uh, being a cool kid, I quite like uh, Jim Ross in this period. But um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that there are there are things that Gorilla Monsoon is not given enough credit for by the by the hardcores. That's my that's my point, and it's just a, making crappy matches entertaining through like banter and things. Whether he's with Heenan or with uh, or with Ventura. Um, I mean, the other point is they'll always dog on him for doing things like criticize. You know, he didn't hook the leg and stuff like that. Um, like, why are you criticizing the actual match that's like the workers as they're going on? But I mean, you can see that 
you know, Jim Ross basically shit all over the Norman match, for example. And it was a terrible match. So anybody watching at home is the only option they've got to come away with is that was a terrible match. Yeah, my my theory on that, though, is uh, two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, I I think that's a good way to say it. Right. Okay. Um, No, I'm just, it's legitimate criticism of uh, Monsoon, but it's not like uh, he's the only one who did it as well. Um, Missy Hyatt is with the Steiners, who give quite a a standard Steiners uh, promo. Uh, My big note here is, um, Chad, did you hate this as much as I think you did? Um, yeah, you did have a uh, Rick with his little sting sign, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't like it. That's all. That's about all you can say. I, I was not a fan of this promo. <laughs> all right, well, let's get on to this next match because it interests me a little bit. Um, it's Ole and Arn Anderson versus the Steiners, and Rick does come out with that sign saying Sting's Revenge on it. Um, so, whose turn is it? I can't remember. Let's, let's start with you, Chad. How about that? Mm, I think uh, I'm, I may be... I know that both of you guys like the Steiners more than me. Uh, this match I liked, but I don't know what it was, but to me, a couple of things on this match didn't uh, kind of resonate with me or feel, I, I guess, exactly right. One was the extended shine sequence where, I mean, this this to me is a uh, almost like a Steiner burial for most of it. I mean, the Steiners are on offense of this match, I'd say, for a vast majority of it. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, it's around 17 minutes. We probably, of that, get about two minutes of face in peril. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the other thing is uh, Arn Stooging, which I'm usually a, a pretty big fan of. I don't know if it was just because this match was in the semi-main event slot or I feel like we'd kind of seen a better version of some of that stuff with Cornette and the Midnights earlier. But it, it just, I don't know why, but it kind of annoyed me the way he was stooging around, uh, flying around. I mean, because the horsemen were being portrayed as such a vicious uh, force with their attack on Sting. So to see, you know, Arn, the enforcer of the group, kind of doing this kind of comedy shtick, uh, uh, it didn't really fit for me. And I think that made the match suffer overall. Charles? Yeah, I didn't think this was very good either. Um, Oli is is actually pretty solid in this match, I thought, but he's just he's just too old to be in the ring. Um, but But I thought he was fine. Uh, at first I made a note because I thought this was the direction they were going to go. I was like, Oh, Rick is face in peril. That's different because usually in Steiner's matches it's Scott, but they ended up not sticking with that very long. And, to, and I don't know if I was right on this or not. I may not be, but the moment when Oli did the leg, the leg grapevine to keep Scott from getting the tag to Rick later in the match seemed botched because that's always in, you know, tag matches like this, a way to, um, cut the ring in half and, even yeah. then Scott still made the tag to Rick. And so I just didn't feel like there was any structure to this at all. It just kind of seemed like um, a bunch of stuff happening without any rhyme or reason. Mm. So I, I didn't really enjoy it. Well, I'm going to be the outlier here chaps. Cause I, I, uh, I didn't think this was as bad as either of you. Um, and I do think it did have quite a lot of uh, rhyme or reason. I mean, the, the story of this match is that 
the Steiners are a better tag team than the than the Andersons at this point in time. Um, Terry Funk did a pretty fantastic job of getting into Ole's mind. He says he knows that Scott Steiner at this point in his career has got a strength advantage over him, so he has to rely on leverage, right? So the Andersons know that they can't outpower the Steiner, so that their plan is to, um, you know, out wrestle them. But they can't. They can't. They just can't get it going. Um, that this is this is actually a match without a face and peril sequence. They can't get like whenever it looks like a face and peril sequence is about to get going, something happens like the tag that you mentioned, Charles, or that they you know they find a way. Uh, to get the Steiners back on top. Um, yeah, I just thought, I thought Arn looked pretty good, actually. Uh, you know, he he um, he did do a lot of stooging, but, you know, uh, I think that they were trying to put the Steiners over pretty strong in the match as being, you know, a basically superior team in 1990. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just didn't think it, I, I don't think that the, the, the matches is uh, as bad as you're making out, but um, Steiner uh, Meltzer went two and a quarter with it, which is probably more in line with you than with with me. Well, uh, would you go uh, that high, Chad? Yeah, that's that's about where I was. Me and Meltzer are uh, pretty actually aligned on this show. That's right around where I'm at. <laughs> and you, uh, Charles, two and a quarter. Uh, I actually went a star and a half. Star and a half, right? I mean, um, okay. Well, I mean, I, I just th- I I thought. I mean, even Meltzer's got the note here. Arn is tremendous in every spot. I thought he was good. Um, and that, there was one point where uh, I don't know if it was a botch or not, but Scott Steiner did a really odd suplex on uh, Ole Anderson. I didn't know how to call it. Did you catch that? It's like a weird. I I don't know, like a screw, like a. I, I don't know how to call it, but there was an odd, uh, odd suplex there. Now, I'd go a little bit higher, like um, two and a half, say, or something like that. Oh, well, that's not, yeah, I figured you'd be higher than that. I mean, I mean, as, as far as uh, one of the main themes worldwide in wrestling in 1990 is, uh, I know uh, Charles and Will talked about this on their 1990 podcast, is kind of out with the old, in with the new. I mean, I think you could make a case this was that type of match in some regards with the Steiners getting the win. Uh, but it did feel a little fluky to me, their victory. I mean, I understand that you may not have wanted to put them over incredibly strong, but uh felt a little fluky. Yeah, well, it was a, fl- it was a flash inside cradle, wasn't it? A flash pin. Yeah, yeah, kind of anticlimactic finish. Ross ended up having to say, oh, the Steiners won it. You know, it seemed like everybody was uh, paying attention to something else. Um, post-match, they tried to break Scott's arm with Ole's uh, flying knee drop, and I was really surprised that he was still able to do it because <laughs> he, he looks quite old at this point. Um, so... There we are. Ole surely doesn't wrestle much beyond this, uh, guys, does he? I thought he transitioned into a more kind of managerial type role. Yeah, this I, I don't don't hold me to it, but I do think this is the last time we'll see Ole on one of these shows as a wrestler. It, it is. It is. In fact, I'm I'm not even sure if Ole had any matches after this at all because I know that like WCW really wanted him out of the ring at this point. So you probably won't see him again. 
Yeah, I mean, he does have it like, I don't know if they work double duty or not, but there's a match from the main event, which I still haven't watched, by the way, but I, um, I do want to watch it before the next time, Chad. Um, Ole Anderson and Arn Anderson versus uh, yeah. Tommy Rich and Ranger Ross. Right. <laughs> I want to see that match. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm told that uh, Ranger Ross has two hot tags in that match. Oh, good. So... There we are. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, like, if the, Ole Anderson did two matches on the 25th of February, that's pretty hot, pretty good going for him. Um, so d- d- there's a promo now with uh, Gordon Soley and Lex Luger. Luger's wearing a terrible shell suit. Uh, did you see this <laughs> shell suit? It's just yeah. horrible. Um, and, uh, well, the, the story of that promo is power slam the rack. Power slam the rack. That's his plan. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. This is probably the best Luger's been as a babyface that we've seen, I think. Yeah, I mean, he did a pretty sudden turn, and this was a good uh, kind of pre- pre-match promo, I thought. And then we get Soli with Flair. Now, as I was saying, I think there's something up with Rick. He's not as into his promos as normal, in my view. And I don't know if either of you caught this, but there's a moment where it's almost like he's looking off camera to say, is that it? Is that enough? for you type of thing because he kind of like has to go on a bit longer than I think he wanted to so but then again this is a man who's just been fired a day before his birthday so um, yeah maybe something's on his did, did you notice that, that it's maybe something up with uh, Flair here during this promo yeah I think uh, may, I mean it was, it was a good promo but yeah it may probably not up to usual Ric Flair standards I think um Having this match, which I, I don't, I won't talk about it yet, but just having this match is probably really good for Min's birthday because he got to go in there and kind of prove to everyone that he still had it. Yeah, and uh, well, Sting comes out on crutches. Chad, you anything on that promo? Did you notice anything? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, fine, but not up to Flair's usual standards. Woman was awfully shiny. <laughs> yeah, well, well, <laughs> yeah. Woman is with Flair. Yeah, what woman is there too? Um, it's Power Piston Muscle Monster Total Package Lex Luger! Mr. Total, what's on your two feet? Ruse. Ruse! Shoots me a beat! Pockets be So, yeah. The main event time. Lex Luger versus Ric Flair. Uh, one fall for the world title. <laughs> Charles? Um, this is... Pretty much a masterpiece, honestly. Um, I think that this is the last time that we saw the Ric Flair of the 80s. That I, I really think this is the last time we saw him. Um, and that's not to say that the rest of Flair's career was a wash, but it was the things that were good were not this good, and or they were good in a different way. This is 1980s Ric Flair going 40 minutes. Um, with a guy who I think was a capable opponent. I think Luger was very good in this match, actually. But um, but Flair was obviously leading the way and did a fantastic job. Um, I, I mean, there were some flaws. I think uh, Flair working over Luger's arm, you know, early on, and then it's like it never happened two minutes later, kind of stood out to me a little bit. And 
you know, the finish I thought was an extreme cop out because uh, my thought is if you're going to do a last minute main event switch for a crowd where a lot of people have probably already purchased a ticket, then give Luger the win to send them home happy. Um, I felt like there was a lot working against this match. Uh, Flair had momentum as a babyface, and then he turned heel. Uh, Luger had momentum as a heel, and then he turned babyface. But um, you know, both were miscast. But um, but at the same time, they were still big enough stars that they were going to get a reaction no matter what they were doing. But Flair, I thought, just overcome or overcame all of this. Um, I, a little note just that I felt like this was better than any match Flair had ever had with Steen by a country mile. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, put over Luger in pretty much every sequence. And, and the story of the match, I thought, was Luger's power versus Flair's resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you see Flair work with more, quote-unquote, complete wrestlers like a Bobby Eaton or a Brian Pillman and see him switch it up and see what he does with Luger, it's pretty interesting. But um, this series, I think, I mean, it's a testament to Luger for sure, and we'll get to Luger, but I really think this series is is really a testament to the greatness of Ric Flair. These are not his best matches, but they are always good to great, and he always kind of delivers a performance that elevates the match and makes Luger look good. Even if Luger's being booked horribly, even if like everything as far as the setup of the match is working against them, they still find a way... Um, to pull out a great match. And um, so, I don't know, this is kind of the swan song of the Ric Flair that I think was the best wrestler of all time. Chad, follow that? (laughs) That's that's, pretty tough. I pretty much echo what Charles said with that. I think um, I do like, if you want to make a case for uh, Flair's the greatest of all time, I think this is a good cutoff point if you want to argue his peak. And then you can say that sort of anything else is uh, gravy afterwards. Uh, this match, I mean, I mean, this match goes 38 minutes. And to me, it really flies by fairly quickly. I did not think it was a, uh, a long or rigorous match to get through at all. Uh, had a lot of interesting themes. Luger looked really good with his power moves, was able to get himself over uh, with the crowd as a baby face. I didn't think Flair was as cheered, you know, as much in this uh, match as you might think, him being a freshly minted heel. And uh, we just saw a matchup at Starcade 89, and they gave a, a pretty different match here two months later. And then as we see at Capital Combat three months from this, they give another match uh, that's Different and also good, but uh, this to me is their masterpiece together. I mean, this is the best match I think they had against each other. Uh, Starcade '88, I would have to think about to think whether I would think that match is better than any uh, Flair versus Sting match, but uh, this match is to me uh, clearly better than any Sting versus Flair match. So, uh, just a great match. Yeah, I mean, for me, I thought that. There was a very interesting story going on in this match because um, clearly Luger established his superior strength early on and it looked like, shit, Flair is up against a monster here and he's going to you know, get his ass kicked type thing. And um, Luger was doing all the kind of usual Superman kind of, you know, Ultimate Warrior style stuff, you know, the, the big, uh, like typical powerhouse babyface spots. Um, but then 
once Flair kind of took over on offense, he was kind of in that desperate mode where he was doing all he could to maintain advantage with the, every single tri- trick in the book. Um, and Jim Ross kind of did quite a good job of getting that over on commentary. But then when, like, there's a there's point in the match, Luger then has like a second spell on top where he still has that strength uh, advantage. But it seems like kind of hope is fading a little bit for him. And um, like, it feels like the longer the match goes on, the more kind of flair gets into it and dominates. And there's a moment where he hits the butterfly suplex. Um, do you remember like the double un- under? So he only busts that out right. on, spe- on special occasions, right, Chad? I mean, he he's done it like in just the big matches. He doesn't do it every match. And for me, it was like, it's in moments like that where like the idea of Ric Flair, I'm t- talking kayfabe now, Flair is the best wrestler in the world, comes across strong in a moment like that. It's almost like he's saying anyone can do a few gorilla press slams and flex their muscles. But, but this right here is the name of the game. Like, can you do it after 25 minutes? What have you, got, le- what have uh, you got left in your locker at this point? You know, um, if I, if I could just add something very quick, yeah. just to back up what you're saying right there. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I felt like this was important. So much criticism of flair sometimes is that he doesn't know how to make himself look good. And that's such a completely untrue point. And, and I think that's the perfect example of that. So I just felt like I needed to get that in because Ric Flair to me looks like a very deserving world champion here. He had a more than capable challenger who gave him a run for his money, but he doesn't look like a guy who doesn't belong. No, that absolutely. And, and right. Like just as this moment where he hits this butterfly suplex, you think, well, this is, this is the sort of thing that made Ric Flair the man. And like, for me, it felt like, like one of the kind of subtexts of this match was that Lex Luger's clearly grown up quite a bit since 1988, right? The last time they had a match under these type of circumstances where Flair is the kind of heel and Luger is the fan favorite. Um, like, so he's clearly grown up and matured in the two years since the last time they did this type of match. But I think there's questions being asked of him. Like, does he have what it takes to win this sort of world title match? And I, I thought the actual dynamics of that are amazing. It's, it's almost like he was the Flair was the master taking this upstart to school. You know, you are good Lex, but you're still not this. You're still not this good. And I, I actually thought they built that moment really well, where um, you know Flair hit the knee breaker and he's clearly homing in on the figure four. It's the final straight. And Luger at this point feels like he's fading fast. He's about to go down. And Sting comes. Sting comes out then. And he gives like a Luger a motivational speech, and and this motivational speech by Sting is probably the best thing Sting has done since like since we've done these shows, Chad, in my view, because like he really gave him like the full Al Pacino any given Sunday here, and, and um, this perked Luger up enough to like fight through the pain barrier and Hulk up and do a gorilla press, uh, which gets a massive reaction. Right, and the fans go absolutely crazy, and it's probably. Like Luger might have never been as over as he as he is in that moment <laughs> um, when he does that gorilla press. I mean, the fans are going nuts for him. Um, woman gets on the apron, slaps Luger. We get a big knee from uh, Flair for the ref bump, and um, the clothesline catches Flair coming off the top. Which uh, so the ref goes down. This is the finish. We get a superplex by ref, 
uh, we get a superplex by Luger. The ref is still out. And they basically count to like nine or something. Like he's clearly won this match. Arn and Ole then hit the ring. And they get um, he gets the torture wreck on. And the ref is still out. And I, I really felt like it was really agonizing for Luger. Like he, he, he's got this, but the ref is down. And then Arn and Ole grab Sting and try to attack uh, him with the crutches. And Luger goes after them and gets counted out. So, I mean, you know, cheap, cheap finish. But I actually loved that finish. I thought it was really clever. Like, as cheap finishes go, that's as good as they come. So I thought this was actually amazing, this match. I really thought it was great. <laughs> you, you know, the, and I'm curious if, if Chad has ever thought this, too, especially going through a lot of the 90s stuff. But this is, to me, like one American feud that really has some similar storytelling to some of the stuff in Japan, where you have this long chase for a title and you know every time you see them walk up you think this is going to be the time and it just doesn't happen and it's a little bit different in that there's no payoff and there's some extraneous factors that aren't present in like all japan for example with interference and that sort of thing but still i i think you can compare it as far as that long chase and that emotion of this being the night to um a lot of the better feuds in japan do you agree with that chad yeah i mean i mean you even have kind of the uh the clip of you know luger was a horseman and was brought in with a member of flair stable uh kind of as his protege if you want to say that uh so yeah it is a long-term build that unfortunately doesn't have that i mean i think they could have had that one shining moment i don't we'll discuss this a lot on the next show i don't really know what happened uh, between now and then, I guess they were so certain on giving it to Sting, but uh, Capital Combat with RoboCop and all that seems like a very, uh, very ill-advised choice that they went with after this because you were kind of setting it up where you could have had the cage match with the Horsemen at bay and Luger's finally able to seize the big one and have a big moment, even if you wanted to do the cop-out finish here. But, you, you know... If Ric Flair, right, had put Luger over when he was meant to in 1991, you know, when he went to the WF, I think, like, that match had the potential to be something like uh, like a jumbo Tenryu 89, like the moment where Luger finally beats Flair after all these years. Um, I, you know, I don't know if uh, Flair in 91 is quite as good as he is here, but it had the potential, like, for the long-term, you know, build, it had the potential to be that. It's tough. I mean, it's tough. I'm right, I'm right up to that in the 91 year book. And I can say that to me, both of them, uh, both Luger and Flair, even in the build to that match, which I'm watching, they both seem uh, pretty checked out, especially right. Flair. So, I mean, it's tough to say. I mean, I do, for me, I think Capital Combat would have been the. Uh, you think that would have been more, the moment? Yeah, I think that would have been the moment. Or even, here's something I've never really thought about, but what about. Uh, I mean, that would have been a quick turn for Luger in uh, WWF, but you could even fantasy book him to come in there when Flair was there in 92, uh, like after the Savage deal, have uh, have Flair versus uh, Luger there, maybe Survivor Series 92. That could have been interesting. Or I or guess he still wasn't cleared, but... The narcissist could have been the guy who beat Ric Flair and the loser leaves the WWF match instead of Mr. Perfect. Right. Right. Okay. Amazing fancy book yeah. Flair and Luger in uh, WF. <laughs> yeah. 
but but no, it, like I, I agree, this uh, this feud has had everything so far. So it's kind of a shame that we don't get that big. Yeah, it needs that one defining moment to me to put it. I mean, even in the, I mean, Steamboat and Flair has that moment with both Steamboat winning the title and the WrestleWar match, uh, and it's bridged by the Great Clash Six match. You have the Flair Funk. Uh, match, which I know we had a little problem with the finish part, but that's still a you know a damn good blow off match. So uh, uh, kind of missing the, here. The near falls in in I would say this for all Flair Luger matches, but especially in this one, those close near falls are just incredible. No, just, yeah, really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, and I think part of that is the emotion of thinking this is going to be his night. But every time it's like two, and like it's the closest possible. And that and Flair has always been great at that. Like with close calls, he's always been great at that. But I think that that's heightened just because of the perception. Like I said, that this is finally going to be Luger's night. Right. I, I actually think like of of all of the matches that we've seen them in, um, weirdly. Flair was booked stronger here than he was in '88. Like Flair would like um, in '88, it felt like Luger had Flair beat here, despite the fin- despite the finish and and before Sting <laughs> before Sting's motivational speech, it really felt like Flair had Luger beat. Like Flair had established himself as really like you know the best wrestler in the world. Yeah, I'd say, right, in some of the 88 matches, it seemed like Flair had kind of underestimated Luger. Right, Um, And in this match, I don't think you got a sense of that. You just uh, thought that, like, no matter what, Flair couldn't escape, like, Luger's power advantage, so. Yeah, and I think this was definitely a match where I had the perception, anyway, watching that Flair was treating Luger as a peer instead of a challenger, and he had to bring his A game. No, absolutely, and he did. He really brought his A game here. But just, just, just before we get off this um, match, Charles, while you're still on the line, um, I, I, you and Will have said that at some point down the line you're going to do a, um, uh, like a Brett uh, Flair show because um, there is a there is a thread on Pro Wrestling Only, uh, rather notorious for a thread now of uh, of Bret Hart versus Ric Flair, right? Of uh, people of, of like a greatest of all time contender. Um, now I couldn't like, I'm not emotionally stable enough to be part of a conversation like that, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, cause I get too upset, but like to me, I don't, and I just like, when you look at a match like this and it's not even like, is it even in like Ric Flair's top five matches? Like, no, is it even no. in his top 10 matches even? I mean, probably if, not. Right. If, if this was a Bret Hart match. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't want to. I like. I don't want to run Bret Hart down. But to me, it's just it's ridiculous to even put those two in yeah, the same argument. And and I do think Bret Hart would have been capable of a match like this. Like I think he had it in him for sure. But as far as meeting that level regularly, no way, no way. Yeah. Well, it's not what could have been. It's what happened, right? Right. <laughs> and, right. Yeah. Right. So I mean that that's a that's an argument for a, a different day. Uh, I I don't know. I don't even know if I look forward. I don't even know if I look forward to it because I I I'm, I'm not <laughs> capable of dealing with the with the people who argue for Brett over Flair. I'm, I, yeah, yeah, I'm, you and I, me both. I'm incapable <laughs> of it, but um, I I just wanted to, I while you're on the line, I just wanted to say that. So, Chad, I oh. I, I guess uh, even though you're uh, 
less emotionally invested than I am. I'm, you're, I'm pretty sure you've got the same point of view, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as you was posing that question, I was kind of doing my Rolodex of Bret Hart matches, and for me, uh, you know, if Bret Hart had a match like this um, with Bret Hart's career, I, I, the only two matches right offhand that I know I'd definitively say were better than this match is Bret versus Owen at WrestleMania 10 and uh, Bret versus Austin at WrestleMania 13, which I, I so I can't think of uh, another match. I mean, he's had great matches, but I don't know if he's had another one that's on the level of this, honestly. Um, can, what, what, were, what were the star ratings for this match? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, right. So, yeah, this is uh, four and a half for Meltzer. Um, but me, personally, I'd go four and three quarters for it because I really like it. And based on the fact that I was pretty high on the other Luger matches, uh, I went four and three quarters for this. Yeah. Uh, I also, uh, going through the yearbook, I went four and a half on my spreadsheet. Uh, rewatching it again, much like the Midnight's versus Rock and Roll Express, I liked it a little better this time. Uh, I'd go four and three quarters. I had it ranked as my number seven match of 1990. I'm, I, I, of course, need to watch really all the stuff again to see, but uh, I honestly can see it as like a top three or four match contender now. I, I would say I was. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth. I, I had it at four and a half. Also, I, I think I had it similarly ranked. And I mean, there are other matches I think I had above it, like the September thirtieth tag, the forty-five minute draw from All Japan with Misawa and um, Kawada against Jumbo and Tao. And now I think about it, and I don't think that match is as good as this one. So yeah. Um, so that yeah, I, I can see it too. Definitely. That- yeah, that one and the uh, the Bull versus uh, Aja Kong cage match, which I like the second cage match quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, that that was another one that I, when I rewatched this match, I was like, I think I'd push that one. I mean, to me, it's really uh, this. Uh, for me in 1990, it's this match. It's the El Dandy versus Satanico uh, hair versus hair match. El Dandy versus... Uh, Angel Azteca from 6190. And then uh, I like the second Jumbo versus Masala match a whole lot too. So I think those are probably my top four matches of the year. Yeah. Right. Well, I look forward to the day when I can uh, talk in those terms. <laughs> um, talk to me again in uh, maybe a year and uh, I'll give you my top five matches of the 1990. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> a year, Parv? A year? <laughs> Yeah, or maybe two. Yeah, I was going to say, it's been a year since, almost since the set came out. But, you, you know, I'm I'm watching it in between our shows now. I've built yeah. it into my okay. kind of routine. So. Yeah, okay. Um, right, well, end of show awards then. Um, I'm going to say uh, less match of the night, I think, is a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, is, yeah. Is, is, it, is it a no-brainer? To me, it's a no-brainer, but that's, I mean, that's to take nothing away from the tag match. Again, I mean, this is a show that you want to talk about, like, I mean, SummerSlam 2013 was a show I really liked a lot and had two great matches on it. Mm-hmm. But this this is another pay-per-view that, I mean, these are two, to me, classic North American matches. So, Yeah, but, but we're, essentially we're all going to go Luger Flair. Yeah, yeah, I go Luger. Yeah. yeah. So... MVP then. I've got a feeling I know which way this is going to go as well. <laughs> Ch- Charles, uh, MVP? Um, Ric Flair. 
Ric Flair, uh, I think, had something to prove. And, and this is just me guessing, but considering this, how he walked into this match, it's his 41st birthday. He's being written off. He's just lost his job as a booker, and then he goes out and shows that he can still do this better than anyone. So um, he's the MVP for me for this show. Chad? Uh, this, may, this may come as a surprise. Uh, Jim Cornette for me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? I yeah, think that's actually a good, a good pick, too. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm serious. And here's, here's my reasoning for that. Um, I think both him and Flair gave, like, A performances in their repertoire. But with Flair, I do think he reached this level in other matches. And that's to take nothing away from what he gave in this match. But I can think of right offhand, like, maybe four or five other matches he was in that I liked just as much. And with Cornette, I mean, this is somebody that I think is one of the top three managers of all time. And I'm really struggling to think of a match that I enjoyed him better than in this match. I thought he added so much to it. So uh, that, that, that stuff with uh, Nick Patrick is probably one of the funniest things you'll ever see as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Just, I'm floored by that. Chad, just because you're the guy who picks Ric Flair every time without I know, I know. I kind of wanted to bunk that, and it's not, I didn't want to do that just to be contrarian, but uh, that's why I wanted to kind of lay out my reasoning there. Well, I was going to say Nick Patrick, uh, who I thought had a great (laughs) title. No, my my pick is Ric Flair for all of the above. Um, And uh, yeah, I actually thought that this is his best, like, this is his best performance in some time. Uh, And it probably will, like, he. By all accounts, he goes downhill after this in 1990, right? He has a crisis of confidence, and yeah. like we're not going to be saying seeing the same Rick after this point. I mean, I mean, he's really good in that Capital Combat match. I mean, not up to this level. I think it's really the well. I mean, it, I, I think it may be tougher on pay per view par than like going through the yearbook yeah. because I do still really like that Doom tag at Halloween Havoc, also. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I don't think it's at the same level. I don't think he was ever at the same level in 1990 as this match to me. And then, um, oh yeah, the Billy Graham Award, worst worker of the night, Charles, uh, Norman the Lunatic. <laughs> oh, naturally, <laughs> that's a pretty good. Uh, do, do I even need to ask you why? <laughs> no, no, please don't, <laughs> uh, Ch- Chad. Uh, I'm actually going to go with Johnny Ace on this one. I thought, uh, I, th- I thought, I mean, Norman, I wasn't expecting anything from that. Uh, I thought Johnny Ace kind of held back that opener where uh, if he hadn't have been in it, if somebody like average level would have been in it, I think I would have went like three stars and thought that would have been a fun, good match. Like you put somebody like Tommy Rich in that spot, I think that would have been a fun, uh, really fun match and he kind of brought it down a good bit for me. Well, I'm surprised at both of you because the obvious worst worker of tonight is Jimmy Garvin. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely abysmal in that match. So I'm going to go with uh, Jimmy Garvin. <laughs> um, so where do we go from here, Chad? It's, uh, it's, there's not a clash in between now and Capital Combat, right? No, there is no clash. And uh, our next show will be show number 50. Oh, which, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so we got something special planned for that that so, I don't want to give so, too much away. We take but... yet another departure from doing yeah, yeah. For yet another special. 
I tell you what, after we do the special for the 50, right, let's not do another special for like 15 shows. Okay? Yeah, we probably <laughs> won't. We'll probably be able to go straight through. But yeah, show 50, we've got something kind of special planned. We hope it comes off. Uh, we think it'll be pretty cool. So uh, be on the lookout yeah. for that. And I know Justin Rosero jokes that our shows always go long, Chad. Yes. But, you know, you you do, like, we're not coming out three times a week, so you get three you get three hours yeah. once, once in a yeah, blue we, moon. <laughs> we, we pack it all uh, once every two or three weeks. And then, but, yeah, after that uh, is Capital Combat, and we'll have uh, Peter, who was on the AWA show. He'll be making his uh, official kind of NWA WCW debut. Is that PF? Uh, yes, that yeah, is I, I actually I thought Pete was awesome on that AWA show, so I look forward yeah. to talking to him again. And uh, yeah, listen to Wrestling with the Past with Charles. Any uh, any final thoughts, Charles? Just I'm glad that you brought me onto this show because um, this really is. I, I think it's a match that people with the time watch and appreciated. But if you look at matches that are remembered um, to this day, I don't know that it really has as much of a reputation as it deserves. And I think. Um, it's another example of Lex Luger being better than people remember. So thanks for having me on. And let, let me, uh, let me just put out, I wanted to do this during the main event. I'm sorry. I forgot, but, uh, this will be controversial, but to me, yeah, the main event is a match that blows the uh, ultimate challenge out of the water. I mean, it's, it's not even close. Like, yeah, if, if, if you think that's contentious, if anyone wants to fight you on that, Please just outsource some of that to me because I would love to have that debate. Um, can you? Is the ultimate challenge Hogan versus Warrior? Yeah, Hogan versus. Are you, are you kidding me, Chad? Does that point even need to be made to anyone? Uh, I, 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 I'm, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, just, I'm, get, I'm getting emotional again. Let's stop. Yeah, I'm, I'm just telling you. I know there'll be some. Like, I mean, I understand if it was your childhood. But I think uh, looking at both of them in a vacuum. It's, I tell you what, if you're listening, if you subscribe to the show and listen, and you genuinely think that Luger, I don't, I don't want you as a listener. So, oh. <laughs> all right, let's start, let's let's start before I say something I regret. <laughs> all right, well, thanks a lot, Charles, and uh, I really look forward to your uh, your upcoming shows. Um, all right, and uh, yeah, see you again next time. All right, see you then. Thank you. Bye, guys. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.